Welcome to episode 609 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Alright, team, welcome along to episode 609 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? I am very good, Bevan. And yourself? Um, uh, uh, well, this is take two. In the first take, I said how I'm in a, I'm in a motel room in Wellington, which I'm sure has had lots of one-hour sessions, John. Let's just put it that way. Yes. That's, that's all I'm going to say. And uh, But it served its purpose. How is Wellington? Thinking, windy Wellington in New Zealand, everybody around the world. Wellington is known as the windiest place in New Zealand. Do you know what? I'm up here for the running business, and we just I went out with the new cruise yesterday morning and last night. And Wellington's a pretty bloody cool city. And in the morning, going for a run in Wellington around the waterfront, is probably one of the most beautiful runs you'd do in the world. Like, it's, it's absolutely stunning. Like, because it's, you know, you got you're, obviously you've got the water in front of you, you've got the city central city's right on the water and the lights of the city it was pretty special and we didn't get the wind so it wasn't windy wellington it was just happy wellington it's very high praise oh seriously like it was it's you know you can see you know, I, I don't know where else you run in wellington but around the waterfront it's it's because you up in auckland you've got that waterfront run as well which is a beautiful run but i'd say wellington's probably prettier because you've got the mix of the city right beside you when you're running. Um, but very special. John, it's very special. Um, I'm talking is proudly brought to you by... Extreme Endurance. Your lactic buffer. And our patrons. Name a few, John Boo. Scott the Growler Woolsey. We've got Brendan uh, the Teacher Schoolie. And David Hale... To the king. <laughs> Absolutely gold. I love that one. Okay, guys. This week's show, we've got some news. We've got a discussion of the week, age group of the week. We've got a quick tip. We've got winger of the week. And uh, we're going to put an interview that I did with Johan Harry. Johan Harry is the author of the book, The Lost Connections, the one around depression. And it's such an important book. And A, he's a great interview. And I know it's not necessarily triathlon, but it's a, it's a topic that affects most of us in life, not maybe personally, but by those around us. And uh, I just think it's a really important book. So we decided we'll put it in this week's show for you guys to have listened to as well. But anyway, John, let's get into the news. First of all, Terenzo Bazzoni is killing it. Three weeks in a row, he went, Ironman New Zealand uh, took the win and went sub eight hours on a very difficult course. He won a 70.3 last weekend. I think it was in Argentina. And then he's done it again this weekend in Mexico at Campeche 70.3. He's... Uh, She's just so impressive. So he went three three hours forty nine, won by um, just over a minute um, from Michael Weiss and Rudolf von Berg. Uh, Heather Wordle won the girls from Lauren Brandon. Um, but man, it's just mind blowing that you can do an Ironman seventy point three and a seventy point three and win all three. Just insane. Three weeks apart, and then you look at his lead up to late last year. He won Los Cabos. He um, the Island House. He mm-hmm. got second in Ironman 7.3 in the Middle East in Bahrain. He won Ironman Western Australia. He, with, he's found another level by country mile. He is killing it. He is cranking it, which is good to see. Oh, so uh, so us, happy for him. Us Kiwis, we're hoping he's going to take it all the way in Kona. Uh, there's another 70.3 over in Taiwan. Wait a second. And, wait, oh, do you want to talk about what happened in the girls' race? I mentioned the girls' winners. You should have oh, been listening, you? Bevan. Sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, and over in uh, Taiwan, there was another 70.3. Cody Beals from Canada 
um, took that out, which was good to see because he's actually going to be on the show in the next couple of weeks. Um, okay. And uh, he's a guy that I haven't actually heard of before uh, until this week. And so he must have thought, I'm on that podcast in the week, next week or two. I'm going to have to lift my game so John really knows what's going on. But he That's was right. a real deal. Won it by six minutes um, over Philippe Alvarez. El- Elzevedo and uh, Tim Van Berkel, Andy Potts down in fourth place, and Angeliska Jerks from Poland took out the girls' race from Leslie Smith and Laura Dennis. Um, John, you just got here that there's only four Ironmen in Asia right now. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say only. I'd say that's more than there has been in the past, I think. Um, but I was just impressed, you know, just in terms of uh, where Asia is taking off. So this year in that race in Taiwan, they had 1,672 athletes. Wow. You know, 10 years ago, they would... And uh, 7.3. Yeah, 10 years ago, they'd be lucky to have 500 or something at these events. So um, it's really cranking. They've now got 21 70.3s in, in Asia, and there is uh, there's only four Ironmans. And I think... If it was a slightly more moderate climate, there would be a hell of a lot more because I'm sure there's a demand for it. However, it's just so, all the races over there, it's just so epic in terms of the heat. Well, not all of them, but when we're talking Malaysia, um, it's usually a survival fest. Uh, Subic Bay this year, they're going to have a one-off Ironman race in June, which will be insanely hot, I'm sure. We've got Korea in September and uh, Taiwan in October. And we know that they've had races elsewhere in the sort of Asian scene, but they've just been survival fests, um, you know, races like in China, and, and it's just just not conducive when it's that hot to be having that many Ironman races. But certainly Olympic distance and 70.3 looks like it's going nuts. Okay, well, probably the biggest piece of news this week. Well, not the biggest, but Javier Gomez, it looks, well, it pretty much looks like he's now doing Ken's. And uh, it's pretty exciting. Well, it just confirms COVID, doesn't it? Well, it, it, it's it's. I'd say it's still a, a bit unofficial because I've, I've searched high and low to see if this has been reported anywhere else. So good old Toby uh, Schnell sent this through, and it was in Spanish. It was on Facebook, and it was on a website called uh, Planeta Triathlon, which is all in Spanish, and it certainly does indicate that he's in there. There's no quotes or anything from Javier Gomez, so I don't know where they're getting the information, but I chucked it into uh, freetranslation.com, and it said... The so what you've got here, you, what you've got here is the translation yes geez they do a good job nowadays don't they that's yeah. mind-blowing it's like a two-second job copy paste and says the galatian javier gomez noir has a date to debut at ironman on the 10th of june if a few days ago ruled out frankfurt now has confirmed that he'll be at the antipodes in cairns one of the three tests that are the beginning of the season he valued them as possible given the temperature that can be registered during those first few days of summer on the northeast coast of australia cairns is without doubt the great test to emulate the conditions that can occur in hawaii next month of october i don't think ken's quite simulates um kona but hey it's okay this is a free translation uh it must be it must be borne in mind that heavy takes several weeks moved to new zealand where he has won challenge wanaka recently and the work of the acclimatization is going from strength to strength as indicated in the vos de galicia your idea is back to Pontevecchia to prepare for Polar Cans International Triathlon in April. Uh, also, there could be a concentration in Extremada, Extremadura, as in the season of 2017. So, I wouldn't be at all surprised when I interviewed him. He indicated he was going to be doing a race around about that time. Uh, and he's the kind of guy that wants to go to the big races. And Cairns is obviously a championship one. So, um, yeah, it'd be cool to see him there. Well, I've got to say, 
when you think of him lining up in Kona, it's pretty exciting. Mm. It's and, pretty great. And I think you'll probably lock horns again with Braden Curry over there. He sort of indicated that he might do Cairns, and given that he bombed out at Ironman New Zealand with uh, illness, I think mm. uh, he'll be out there, and he won't be holding back. He'll be uh, he'll be going for it again. So if we look at some of the notes, he pretty much has the points already. Uh, you know, he's got. You know, he's he's on points wise, he's looking pretty sharp, isn't he? Yeah, he doesn't really need uh, necessarily need points. I mean, obviously, this is a regional championship race, and if you do well there, uh, you're going to be cranking it anyway. But he's currently got, courtesy of his seventy point three win and uh, race in Bahrain, he's got three thousand nine hundred and twenty points. Now, if we look at previous years in terms of the number of points you need to qualify, looking at last year, Aniko Lanos was the last qualifier with two. 2,975 points so you know you're looking at that all he's going to need to do is literally finish an Ironman but I think that would be you know just cutting it a little bit fine but if he basically has a any sort of result at at uh, Cairns, he'll be he'll be fine on the points um, because when you win a, a regional championship race, it uh, starts at four thousand points, and um, for uh, all other Ironman races, it's two thousand points, and then it sort of just slowly staggers down. So he literally does just need to uh, finish a race. Yeah, it's pretty cold times. Just other things you picked up on here, John. Uh, pro membership is now nine hundred dollars. Isn't yeah. it cheaper? I thought it was a thousand. Uh, I thought it was seven fifty, but um, oh, okay. anyway, okay. I think p- people sometimes ask these things. It's nine hundred bucks. The Which other is thing, fair, because that's free entry to every race for the year. So that's that's you know it's actually pretty good, really, isn't it? It's it's enough that you've kind of got to be committed. Uh, yeah. If it was if it was you know some random person like me or you who said oh, I just want to do I'm just gonna, I want to race pro at one race. It's, um, they do have a one race registration, but uh, if you're paying nine hundred bucks, uh, knowing that a lot of pros don't make a lot of money, you kind of got to be pretty committed to make sure this works. Mm. Um, the other thing that I noted when I was uh, scavenging around the pro section of the Ironman website, which is not super easy to follow, because what mm. I was trying to do is trying to find a breakdown of the points you know first through to whatever to try to figure out what would the minimum placing Javier Gomez need to do to, to be kind of rest assured that he'd have a slot and I couldn't find it anywhere but the other thing that I did stumble across is we have had some pro athletes racing at age group um, races uh, age group only races and there's been a bit of controversy saying what are they doing there uh, are they actually being recognized as the winner and they're certainly going out of their way now to discourage uh, pros from racing racing age group races um, ironman.com will include the overall finish position of pro athletes in the overall position uh, rank position and categorize them as a division of mo- male pro or female but when you're coming across the finish line it's they're, they're very much going to try not to recognize you pro athletes results will not be included in the overall age group results or individual results we know pro wave start um, yeah they basically really got lots of bullet points Really strongly trying to discourage people from racing, which Each is exa- point. which Stay is ex- away from this race, yeah, which is exactly what they should be doing, and I agree with that policy. Yeah, okay, John's here. We've got uh, New Plymouth, New Zealand happening this weekend. It's a World Cup race, sixty thousand in prize money. Pretty strong girls field. What's happening here, John? It's like there's good money on the ITU circuit. Um, you know, this is a, a second tier race in the $60,000 in prize money. So it's a great way for the up and coming athletes to try to earn some money. But I will say, the standard at these races these days is just so, so high. You know, and this is your second tier. It is. And, and you've got to remember, people, when you're watching those 
World Triathlon Series races, the top level, the athletes that are in the middle to the back of the pack of those races these days are incredibly good. They, mm. If they went to any, you know, a lot of those athletes that might go off and do, you know, 70.3 or, or go and do some non-drafting race, they're absolutely killing it. But when they go to a... WTS series race um, they're just another one in the pack uh, so it's very high so th- this weekend we've got New Plymouth and uh, the guys field there's no, there's no sort of real rock stars you quite often have um, like a Richard Murray turning up to these events or somebody like that um, but this well, time he raced around, last weekend in, in a World Cup didn't he he did yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, this time around, the men's field does not uh, there's not that many names that really jump out at me that say you know they're top top five on um, WTS races or even even top tens. Um, but on the girls' side of things, uh, really strong field. Andrea Hewitt from um, New Zealand will hopefully be – well, she's, she's uh, seeded number two, so Kirsten Casper is seeded top. Uh, Andrea Hewitt, Summer Cook, A.U. Ada, um, Taylor Spivey. Um, so you've got a bunch of very, very good girls. Emma Jeffcoat, who won the recent um, Malulabar race. So really strong race uh, – Girl side of racing, and it's the countdown for these athletes going into the Commonwealth Games, which is only going to be, it's, I think it's on the 6th of April. Um, wow. So this is a sprint distance race, so yeah, form will be important going into to, to taking form from this going to the Commonwealth Games. Well, it's also a qualifier for the Youth Olympic Games, which mm. is pretty interesting. And you've, you've put some links here to some of the early Olympic Games, but I can't say there's many names Admittedly, I'm not as passionate about ITU as you are, but there's not many names that are really standing out as the stars of now. Well, that's why I was quite quite interested in this because I was just on the ITU page and saw it's a Youth Olympic qualifier, and I thought, I wonder how long the Youth Olympics has been around. And the reason we know about it in New Zealand is because in 2010 we had a Kiwi winner, and I thought, I wonder if the if these Youth Olympics are much of a gauge to actually yeah. seeing whether this translates to, to form as a, you know, a top athlete. Well, and it's interesting when you look at your day, you know, the, the World Age Group Championships, mm. what really is, you know, when you look at your results and the names in your time, that, you know, other than yourself, <laughs> they all went on to, <laughs> I wasn't very unfair. high in the rankings. That, that, that's unfair, but, um, you know, like they basically, the next level of stars came through, wasn't it? And whereas in this year, now, really, again, I'm not as passionate about ITU, so I'm not as detailed and in depth with the names, but there's no one that really stands out. Yeah, so I think if you look at junior world championships, and maybe I'll do that as a as a as a topic another day. I think there's a reasonable correlation to to seeing where the athletes do progress from the junior world champs onto um, reasonably good things. But when I look through this, you know, if I look at the 2010 uh, Singapore, there's only been a couple of these Youth Olympics. First one was in uh, 2010 in Singapore. Um, Aaron Barclay actually won the race, so he was a Kiwi that I was mentioning, and. He didn't, he didn't really go on to, to, to great things, but I did notice that I think his name was down in Ironman New Zealand earlier this year, uh, and okay. a couple a couple of weeks ago in March, and he was just a, a you know um, certainly not a front of the packer there, wasn't back of the pack, but he wasn't uh, you know setting the world on fire. But he he won that race, but second was Kevin McDowell. He's a fairly good performer on the ITU circuit these days, more of a sort of get on the, maybe get on the odd podium. Well, if I click on him. He was born in 1992, and he's currently ranked 23rd on the World 
Championship or the World Circuit. Um, recently finished 10th in Malulaba um, last weekend, had a third at a World Cup last year and a second at a World Cup last year. So he certainly is making that uh, step up. But you are right, there aren't any many other names on there that I can see that have really gone on to, to big things. Um, if I look at the 2010 for the females... Uh, Yuki Sato um, took it out from Ali Salthouse and Kelly Whitney. Now, Ali Salthouse is an Australian. She's doing quite well on the 70.3 circuit now, so hasn't made that step up um, really to the, the ITU short course circuit. But uh, Yuki Sato... Um, she is got a current world ranking of 19th and she finished 8th in the first round in Abu Dhabi and has sort of you know won the Japanese national championships, finished 18th at Worlds last year. So again, hasn't become a, a world champion uh, as such, but doing, doing all right. And then if we look at the next um, uh, Youth Olympics, which was held in... 2014 in Nanjing in China, Ben Dijkstra took that out from uh, another Kiwi. We seem to do quite well at these youth yeah, Olympics. Yeah. Uh, so Ben Dijkstra, he, if people remember back to the latest round of the Super League, he was one of the sort of junior invited athletes and so he's certainly starting to kick on. Looks like he can run like nobody's business uh, and so he's sort of making that step up and Daniel Hoy, the Kiwi is also really starting Starting to step up. He's, he's certainly not uh, what you'd consider a top pro, but he's uh, he's making some inroads there. So from the 2014, those guys are starting to come up. If we look at the females side from 2014, um, Brittany Dutton took it out from Stephanie Jenks and Emile, Emile Morier. And when I look down that list of females, there's no names there that are currently crushing it on the ITU circuit. Brittany Dutton, um, who won... I think she is not currently, or she finished 15th at the Oceania Champs in Geelong, uh, uh, Geelong recently. And uh, yeah, not setting the world on fire, finished 6th at the Oceania Champions there. So I'd say at this stage, winning the Youth Olympics is not necessarily a strong indicator that you're going to be the next uh, rock star. And it's coming up in 2018 in Buenos Aires, that's why we've got qualifying this year. I wonder how long it'll be, like, if the Youth Olympics as an event will ever actually be something that's of significance, you know, um, it's only been going for eight years, and we've only had, this is our third event, you know, but I wonder if eventually it will become something that gets a lot of prestige, where you would get a stronger field, and you get your rock stars of tomorrow, obviously it's not happening yet, but to be honest, I, I I may have heard of the Youth Olympics, mm. but but it's really very much an afterthought. It's not something that I've put any energy into trying to seek or watch. So it'll be interesting to see how that event builds moving forward. Well, I think um, where it might have some momentum is with the national federations because in terms of trying to get funding, you can say, hey, we've got the, the current world uh, current mm, youth olympic mm. champion or podium place getter this is going to be a good pathway for us to have future success which as we've just discussed might not necessarily be the case so i think in that regard it will have some significance um yeah but i think i generally think that the world champs are going to be more important for most athletes we got uh what the hell is going on and before you do your little bit here john last week we talked about the the person and people in new zealand who are doing the no helmet yes and, uh on stuff a few days afterwards they said it the, the protest was appalling. I think they had six people turn up. So ah. <laughs> I, I think I think we're okay. When, you're okay when it comes to your 
stick it to the helmet rule. So yeah, you've got to wear a helmet, people. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so so what had- the hell's going on, John? What the hell? You- I don't think you're going to be angry today. I think you're going to eat some pie. Oh, I'm a bit embarrassed to be honest. So we had the so we uh, we had the Sea to Sky Challenge, the Jay Collett Builder Sea to Sky Challenge at the weekend. It was a challenging day at the office. Uh, first up, it was windy as hell. Uh, the surf initial surf report wasn't there was going to be much wave, so where we hold this event is basically at a surf beach, but it's kind of in a little corner where it's quite often pretty calm. So you 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 probably got a I don't know a good seventy five percent plus chance that you're going to be able to do the swim. It's I, I haven't been to many races there where we haven't actually had to swim. Um, but I, I I get up at, uh, when we did the setup. It was windy as hell. I was like, oh, this isn't good. The forecast isn't actually for this wind to drop down too much. I get up uh, pretty bloody early on race mornings and get out there at uh, four o'clock and go and have a look. First thing I do is go and have a look at the surf conditions. There's a bit of a wave coming in. It is dark, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe this might be okay. And uh, and as time's ticking away and the sun's coming up, it's pretty rough out there. I'm thinking, this swim ain't going to happen. This is going to suck. We're going to have to have a duathlon. It's going to really suck. This one of the surf guys turned up and he said, oh, I think we'll be okay. I think we can have a swim. We might modify it a bit, but I think we can do it. And uh, I talked to another surf guy and he said, yeah, just shorten it. And we'll just have to modify it a bit and we can we can give it a go. One of the key things with this, people, is, is it's... A, you've got to have it's got to be safe enough, but B, you've got to be able to have your anchors to actually um, be able to keep them in position with for your swim boys. So we eventually it started to calm down a bit, and we said, right, we're doing it. We're going to have a going to have a swim, um, but we strongly encourage athletes that are weaker swimmers they should really be doing the duathlon option, and that was the saving grace of this event. We have a duathlon option anyway, so we had quite a lot of people switching over to the duathlon. Nice. Um, but when you're looking at surf front on. And uh, and then you go and look at it side on. It's quite a different view. And we actually start side on to the surf. So you're basically swimming out directly parallel with the surf, and then you make a turn and you come into the beach. And so we stuck with that plan. But uh, as fate would have it, as the start approached, the surf got bigger. And when we set people off, it was uh, it was some pretty decent waves coming in. And, but I will say that we only had one person pulled out of the surf. The surf guys did a fantastic job, and the courage people showed uh, uh, to get to make it around the buoy, they were just getting sucked in, and people loved it, though. And so I was really, really pleased that we actually had the swim. The athletes were stoked, they were pumped, uh, because it was a serious, serious challenge to get through the swim. Well, the nice thing is, because you had the option of the duathlon, for those who aren't so confident, they just would have taken the other option. But, but, you know, like for me, you know, it's just fun and games. It was an adventure. I mean, there was, I think for a lot of people, there was not a lot of swimming going on. And and had this, I heard one quote last night, I was on it running, when somebody said, yeah, they, they went to breathe and they looked up and there was this big wall of water and there was a person like, Two meters above them, oh, really? uh, and so it was. Uh, it was pretty awesome, and people seemed to love it. And it was just. It, we we often talk about these days races are, you know, your big challenge is to see how fast you can go through it. But with this race, it was a real challenge. You're shitting yourself. Is actually how the hell am I going to get through this? So that was really cool. Um, but when the last swimmer came out of the water, uh, the swim boy that was actually the turn point 
popped off its anchor and just it was you just see the swim boy coming in on a wave just coming in uh and to shore so that was pretty cool but i will say a few a couple of weeks ago i criticized uh race directors for making some 101 errors and i had a serious 101 error at this race i'm not going to go into the details of what it was but i am eating some humble pie and any race directors out there never assume anything's going to happen uh you've always just got to check check and check everything again but overall the sea sky challenge was epic and if you want to see what it was like i'll probably be posting um the pictures on our facebook page today and i'm going to give a shout out you know sharon brophy don't you bevan yeah yeah she was one of my photographers out there and she was taking some of the pictures there are some amazing pictures coming out so uh, you'll be able to check it out on the sea to sky page Hi guys, this week's discussion on oh, no, Lesser Sponsor, John's sponsor. Extreme Endurance. Your lactic buffer. Bevan, I hear you ask, how much does Extreme Endurance actually cost? John, that was you, you read my mind. <laughs> you really should be a mind reader. We because we go on, you guys. I know a lot of you guys are on the Extreme Endurance, so remember to use the promo code IMTalk20 because uh, that's one way that they know that their their promotion on uh, IMTalk actually works. But it's a product that I firmly, firmly believe in. But I know there will still be quite a few of you guys out there that have not actually tried it, and it is worth the little investment. It's only forty six ninety five to actually get a pack of Extreme Endurance. Slap on your be a promo code uh, IMTalk20 and you'll get 20% off that. Um, so for a relatively small amount, I can assure you, you get some significant gains in terms of post-race recovery and actual improvement in performance. So if you are going into any um, races leading into the London Marathon or Northern Hemisphere Marathons, or you just want to give it a crack at your next triathlon, it is a good idea to actually try um, before you're going into your major race just to actually measure if there you, you feel like there is any benefit but certainly it has been the case for me and pretty much everybody that I know that's uh, tried it so 46.95 is all it costs to give it a crack chuck the I am, I am talk 20 promo code in there and jobs are good and you'll be going faster and recovering quicker so check it out xendurance.com kiwis and aussies um, I sell it through coachjohnnewsome.com but remember if you are looking at this internationally they have now got new shipping rates and it's still uh, to ship internationally it's still quite a bit but if you sort of buy you know five or six bags at a time buy a big big stock then it's uh, it's not too bad so check it out xendurance.com and while you're doing that you can look at the other products as well so you can mm-hmm. check out some of the other products while you're there John this week's discussion this week's discussion when we first start triathlon we get a lot of advice from all types of people some of it good some of it terrible for this week's discussion we want to know what was the worst piece of advice that you listened to about triathlon you can go first john uh michael taylor and i've experienced this one as well cutting up a power bar and sticking it on the top tube yeah. for an Ironman. this yeah. used to be the th- if you're new to the sport this used to be how you'd feel it because it really was because that's what the pros did and so the yeah. pros did it and you did it and i remember doing it as well my first ironman in south africa and it worked okay there um but then i did it at my second one at Ironman New Zealand and it was the year I don't know if you were yet yeah I think you were there the year it was really really cold uh at the beginning of the bike yeah I don't remember it was freezing and so you have your power bar stuck to your bloody top top tube there and it just froze solid it was just so cold and you you couldn't you couldn't eat it it just stuck there why wouldn't you put in your back pocket well, because most of the time you don't really wear bright jeans. You know, we, we you're just racing in a uh, a, in a, sing- a tri-suit or a singlet or something like mm. that. Yeah. How told you a great one. Uh, I learned to pee on the bike. I did that once and got kicked out of transition. Mm, <laughs> and then, nice. And then, and then Kerry, Drew's got, I think the idea of peeing on your bike 
which I've found to be impossible, is meant to be while you're on the road, not in transition. So exactly. that's quite clever. Uh, Brett Summer, pump up your tyres 10% over the maximum tyre pressure to reduce rolling resistance. Can't say I've ever done that one because the maximum pressure on lowest tyres is pretty bloody high. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's not a goodie. Rob Dalymore has got, before my first try at Ironman, someone told me to freewheel the downhills. That way, the course like Ironman New Zealand, you'd only pedal for 160Ks. I got passed by a lot of people coming down Broadlands Road that year. I didn't think I made it back up again. So, yeah, that's, that's not a good strategy. It's a good strategy at some races where the downhills might be steep. Oh, but yeah, if you're going for a couple of minutes, but yeah. I'm in New Zealand. You've got a very gradual, long descent on, on what, down Broadens Road, and uh, freewheeling down there is not a good idea. Yeah. Um, Mark Gillespie, if you budget entering an Ironman race, if you budget entering an Ironman race does not cost that much. <laughs> Buy one coffee, uh, one less fancy coffee a week, and you'll have it covered. That's yeah, not true. That's not true. Mate, if you're going to this world, open up your wallet, throw it all out. Uh, Lee Spore's got, uh, use washing up liquid in the inside of your goggles to stop them from fogging up. What's the logic there? Oh, I know lots of people do that because, you know, what your goggles are like, they get really... But there's saliva, isn't it? You did a bit of spit. Well, the, the Lisa's sharing what she... Uh, oh, no, Lee is sharing what mistake that he made. Now, the, the real mistake there is if you do it, it does clean your goggles up, but it takes away the sort of protective um, film that's in there. Mm. But what some people often don't do, and I'm wondering if that's what Lee didn't do, is you do that, but then sometimes you don't wash it off fully, and then if you get some water in there, then you get soap in your eyes. Yeah. Um, this was quite a common one Clive Asplin carb loading uh, before a race and use your fat consumption as keep your fat consumption as low as possible uh, and also use insure on the bike so I think a lot of people that have carb loaded in the past that don't do it now have, have got feel totally different and not quite so bloated so that was a, quite a popular one um, Arnold's got uh, replace warm up by layering heated cream before putting on your wetsuit it was 30 degrees start got delayed and I had to take the suit halfway off through the swim. <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> uh, Nora, Nora Tataka, don't eat anything on long cycling training. There's merit to that, but there's also, I think that was uh, something that people used to do a lot in the good old days, not eat anything. So kind of depends what your objectives are there. So Martindale has got bring a bucket of water to rinse your feet off after the swim. Well, I don't think you'd get away with that at many races these days. No. I think any local triathlon you would. It is quite nice to get all the sand and crap off your feet, but you certainly yeah. wouldn't be able to do that at most uh, sanctioned events these days. Yeah. How are you next? Last one I've got here, Finn Swager does make it onto the show. Last week he had the book, and we didn't mention it because he, he wrote too much. This week he just says tar. <laughs> nice. We've got Timmy, I'll go to Timmy. Wake up. He's got the Newcastle Knights. They had a mighty game. I actually watched the game against the Warriors, the Canberra's the other night, and they won the last minute, so we'll be pretty happy about that. Wake up. And start every day with a fast 1k run effort. No more, no nothing. Just run like a madman for 1k each morning. That Honey, would, I'm off. <laughs> that would be hardcore. I can't imagine just going outside right now and it's running a, a hard 1k. <laughs> I just, I just love the thought of it. You wake up and you're out of here. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, oh, it's an injury waiting to happen. Okay, John, what about you? 
Yeah, so in terms of uh, things that I've done, one thing that, that used to get banded around a lot was, and this still happens a lot now, is just overhydrating before before races. Um, yeah. And so you'd just be carrying a drink bottle around, you'd just be peeing the whole bloody time, yep. peeing clear, and uh, it's a bit like for a lot of people feeling like they're bloated from, I think a combination of that plus eating loads and loads of carbs, you just feel bloated and full and uh and but you were told that was the thing to do so you kept listening so yeah. that was probably one thing that i did another thing that is stupid this is more of a training thing that i did once was um we were swimming in a cold outdoor pool for the indoor pool was closed and so i decided to cover my whole body in vaseline um to try to keep warm <laughs> <laughs> and that was not a good idea a i didn't keep I, I didn't keep that warm, and, <laughs> and you're hearing as well. So getting there. Well, this was this was this was summer days, so it was pre pre hair. Oh, okay. I think uh, it was probably just small blonde hairs at that stage, rather than the big long ten inch dark ones I've got now. Um, but that wasn't very effective, and it was not good getting rid of that. And uh, and then the other one that I got told to do was definitely wear a wetsuit in my first races, and uh, and I wore like a windsurfing wetsuit. And my God, that was hard work. So those were three things that I did that uh, probably wouldn't do again. Mine, mine was wear a camelback. All right. Yeah, when I did the race, it was a cycle race. My first ever cycling event, someone said, oh, you've got to wear a camelback, mate. That's a massive mm. race. So I had this camelback, and like the race was, what, three hours? Mm. Yeah, I didn't need a camelback, and I, and I had it full to the brim. And mm. I got in a – because I, I was a fit young man, so I got in a pretty good cycling pack, and this guy just gave me shit the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going camping afterwards. He was yelling it to me. And I beat him, and I was so happy that I beat him, because he was such a smart ass. And then – um, oh, getting those bloody goggles. Do you remember those big goggles? Oh, were, yes. You know, the, the spheres or whatever they were. Yeah. They were, they were all the rage for a second. And I bought them for my, the day before first, my first Ironman New Zealand. And uh, they were an absolute disaster of an event. I mean, of a bloody product. So, yeah, that would probably be my two things. Okay, John, let's get into this week's discussion. So, we've got the Commonwealth Games coming up, and we want to know what your picks are and why you're backing your selection. Now, I know that some of our listeners, like in America, may not know much about Commonwealth Games. So, maybe I'll put a link to the. Is there a field? Is there something to get a link to the field? Uh, Quite possibly, but basically think the Commonwealth Nations, which is New Zealand, Australia, Canada, South Africa, and, uh, and UK. UK, and that's um, where you're likely to get your contenders. So for all you ITU junkies, this is your chance to, to put down who you think is going to take it out. And the reason I thought I'd do this this week, the Commonwealth Games, is a couple of weeks ago, away, but we can discuss it next week uh, and uh, and have a look at what, what's coming up. It should be a very interesting race. Now, it is only a sprint distance, Um but you've got some different dynamics there with the likes of Richard Murray could potentially miss the swim um, group and you've got a couple of very strong swimmers that might get away and, and the likes of Henry Schumann and, and Johnny Brownlee. So, uh, and it's, it's a slightly smaller field than what you'll have uh, at a, a WTS series race. So uh, it could be quite interesting. Could be, or it could turn into a complete draft fest um, uh, or one big group. Uh, and likewise on the girls', girls side of things, you've got lots of different contenders. Also, maybe while you do it, put your team country in as well. John, a group of the week. Richard Swaninoa sent through this week's age group. He said, if you're looking for someone to nominate, I want to nominate Dino Bazzoni. I thought his performance was better than his older brothers at Ironman New Zealand. A lot of people will know that Dino was an ex earlier in his youth, including winning the battle, which 
is the senior boys New Zealand's cross-country run. However, since he retired following a U.S. college running scholarship, he has been less competitive in his recent years while working for Heineken in Sydney. However, he decided to get back into it and entered Ironman New Zealand this year. His training may not have been as comprehensive as possible, and there were rumours his hardest sessions he had done in the week leading up to the race. He may not have swum his predicted 15 minutes, but it was a very, very solid overall day. He rode a solid uh, 5.27, then finished off with a 3.43 run. His high spirits on the run and the start of the run soon diminished as he absolutely suffered out on the run, but he gutsed it out, showing a lot of guts on the run. It was very impressive. I can't remember seeing someone that was so determined to keep going and avoid walking while suffering in an Ironman run. So all up, a 10.23 on debut was a pretty meaty. I believe he might be retiring, returning to retirement now. So John, yes. check him out. So swam a 103. He rode a 5.27. He ran a 3.43. Which, which, which is a pretty complete performance of that ability, isn't it? It is, and he, and he, he kind of moved through the field a little bit, so he was uh, his overall rank was 217 out of the swim, then moved to 148 uh, off the bike, and then moved to 108 after the run. Now, when I was watching, I only watched a little bit of the, the live Ironman New Zealand coverage, and I think it was I think it was on the last lap, um, it might have been the second lap, Terenzo was running along, and he was out in the back of the course, and then some age group dude just started running to them, and I thought, Normally, you see the odd person do that, and you just go, "Well, why do you drop off? You're, you know, you're you're two hours behind this person, um, oh, and you're brother. trying to run, you know, a bloody four minute k with Terenzo." And I thought, yeah, yeah, but, but nothing then, worse than that Muppet, eh? But but then, the, but Terenzo was chatting to him, and I thought, "Oh, that's a bit odd." Um, and now this kind of puts two and two together. That I'm pretty sure that was his brother, who in his day was a, a very good runner by the look of it, because I found him on the IAAF uh, IAAF website, so the International Athletics Federation and he ran all the way back in 2005 he ran a 14.31 for a 5k so you wouldn't wow. say that's um, world class but it's pretty bloody fast so John one thing I used to hate when I was a kid because I was a pretty good runner and you'd be doing a race and you'd be lapping people mm-hmm. and they'd sprint beside you for. A, did you ever have that happen to you? no not really Oh, you said, yeah, because I was I was best cross country runner at my school. Now it's just primary school, but you do lap races and you'd be lapping people and it's beside you for a few hundred, like for a hundred meters. Go, oh, I'm yeah. beating you, Bevan. <laughs> do my head in. I'm not much of an angry man, John, but I'll tell you what, that would get me ranting. You said, do my if, if a pro pass your team, they're a pro. Give them a pat on the back, say good work. Don't run beside them, think you're a pro for a second. But what do you what do you do if you're actually running really well? And the and, and maybe the pro has exploded, and you don't want to slow down. What do you do then, Bevan? Oh, that's different. You're mm. doing your race, mm. but if you're speeding up to be yes. beside the pro to feel cool for a second, you're an idiot. Yeah. Get over it. <laughs> just, just move on. So Please Dino on. Dino Gaskin is a 30, 31 years old, so a couple of years younger than um, Terenzo. So Terenzo's younger brother. This week, Dino, you are our age, age group of the week. week. Okay, Jombo, let's talk about the tip of the week. You got a tip of the week? This is a really short tip, and it's just something that was I heard on the radio the other day. It was really good. I was listening to um, somebody interview Eliza McCartney. So, so for oh, non-Kiwis, yeah. she's, a, she's a top pole vaulter. She's only, I think she's 20 years old now. She got, got a bronze, bronze at, the at the Olympics when she was, you'd never even heard of her, and then we get this bloody bronze medal, and it was just, it was for, for New Zealand. It was a massively exciting event because we were actually watching it, and uh, it was insane. Uh, and she's and, got personality to boot. Like she's kind of the perfect, she's a marketer's dream because she's yeah. young and attractive, 
great chick, really nice personality, you know, just got lots going for her, and obviously an amazing athlete. And so they had a, an indoor, not an indoor, they did this pole vault competition in New Zealand the other day, and they basically did it in this small shopping mall up in Auckland called Britomart, and it's basically um, like a two-storey sort of shopping it's kind of a high-end shopping um, mall and they had the run-up in the middle and they were basically pole vaulting in there. It's a cool, really cool competition. And they were just mm. interviewing her afterwards and um, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but it's more. it was sort of around, you know, what? how do you do your sort of goal setting and, and, and how does that help you? And she really reinforced something that I, that I do as well is she said, look, I just set these goals that are really quite high. They're not stupidly high that you know, they're impossible. And then I just keep telling myself over and over and over that I'm going to be able to do it. And after a while, you really just start to believe that you're, you're definitely going to make it. And it becomes rather than just this big sort of goal that you might think is just a bit crazy it actually starts to become a bit more believable and she just says that that works extremely well for her is just constantly when you've got that goal just reinforce it time and time again and you'll start to believe it a lot more rather than just having it you know write down your goals at the start of the season and just kind of have them in the background or have them on a piece of paper somewhere actually so it's about keeping them keeping them really present and just reinforcing over and over and over again and um and i think that's a, a lot of athletes are, are a bit timid to do that they go oh yeah, I'd like to do, you know, a sub 10 hour Ironman or a sub 11 hour Ironman. I'd like to kind of do it, but you don't sort of follow through with it. And she, you know, she, she she's just, she just missed out on, on um, making a five meter pole vault. She said a PB, it wasn't an officially recognized PB because this was sort of an unsanctioned event. It was just a more of a demonstration one. But she says, you know, I've got those goals and I just keep telling myself I can do them. And then when I break through it, I'll go and set, set the next one and, and make it really, really difficult and just reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. And you're almost a little bit delusional when you do it, but um, she says that, that helps her incredibly. And I know when I go out and race, um, you know, for, for rope, for example, you know, I was convincing myself that I was going to be running sub three hours. And, and whenever I go out and do a, you know, a key run training session, that was what I was really focusing on, and um, and and you remember Dave Scott and people like that talking about when they go to Kona, it's like I'm ready to run, you know, two thirty five pace, and they mm. they might end up running uh, two forty five, but I think that they set that bar really high and and uh, and try to work towards that, and they might come up short from time to time, but it's one of those things, you know, if you shoot for the stars, you you might get to the moon, and uh, the moon was uh, a pretty good achievement when they got there. Well, the, the the great example of that is Muhammad Ali. Have you, did you ever watch that documentary, um, the one where he fought Foreman? I think it's when we were kids. No. Oh, it's brilliant. You need to watch it. It's one of the greatest sporting documentaries of all time. Um, but it's basically when he goes over to Africa and fights Foreman. And basically at this time, Foreman was a freak. You know, Foreman won the world championship in his late 40s. You know, he was a freak anyway. But he, he was almost no, – no one thought he could be beaten. And Muhammad Ali kind of just tired him out and beat him in the end. But – the documentary is the lead up to the fight, and it's absolutely phenomenal. But he's just—he's such a vocal character, anyway. But the whole time, he's just reinforced. You know, he—he's just talking about how he's going to win it, and he's. Mm. In some ways, you watch it and you think, "Wow, what a confident guy!" But then you start to think, "Oh shit, he's just—it's him telling himself. Mm. You know, it's him convincing himself that I'm going to do this. You know, and um, there, there was a bravado about it, but at the same time, it was. Actually, it was kind of like what you're talking about here. He was just like literally convincing himself that he could do this. And uh, 
great if you haven't seen it yeah check it out john you'll love it it's a great documentary yeah i know for some people if you if you're kind of new to sport you kind of don't know your limits and stuff but i would say this season go and set yourself you know a really tough target for for your key race and that or it might be a, a time trial target you might be saying i want to get to whatever xyz for a 20 minute time trial or i'm going to run a sub four hour marathon and just put it down there and work towards it and just convince keep convincing yourself that you can do it and uh, and you will start to have a lot more belief that it, that it can happen okay john let's do uh winger of the week john we're not doing the big intro today winger of the week who's the winger who is the winger of the week? We're going to go with uh, number. We're going to go for past the chamois cream, the most time on the bike this week. Oh, we got a, we got a Frenchman in here. I had a Frenchman win my uh, Sea to Sky Challenge at the weekend. Oh. So Roman Garcin, a jeepers, he only did two activities and he took it out. We have to look oh. into that. So past the chamois cream for Roman uh, did twelve hours and twelve minutes on the bike from two. I think rides. he did. I think he did a ten-hour session, but because earlier on, I think he had most bike time. And I think I saw that earlier, and I think, yeah, he did one ride of just under 11 hours. Oh, it's a big ride. Yeah, it's a big ride. So Roman Garcin takes it out from Dane Stanley in the UK and Brett Johnson, who's a regular up there, uh, in third place. On the female side of things, Mel Seltiel took it out with five uh, rides of uh, total duration, six hours, 54. Jenna Carr-Seafried in second, and Sarah Myford in third. Okay, rock and roll, Jombo. Let's look at questions and answers. Okay, a couple of questions. Uh, random things about Brad Carterfelt. He retires, John. He does. Now, um, so Brad Carterfelt, fantastic ITU career. Um, he, won the, he won the Commonwealth Games, didn't he? He did. You're right there. Well done. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, and I interviewed him last year and wrote, uh, and I know that they were, at the time, they were about to have a baby, so I will assume that uh, nine months is up since then, so they've probably got a, a young family now, but uh, Try247 is where I saw it uh, pop up first, they've done a little compilation of uh, the sprint finishes, he had quite a few sprint finishes in his career, and he was a very, very good sprinter, and probably won was more he, than Was he one with, in that one with Whitfield? He that was indeed, yeah, so if you, want, if you want to check this out, go to try247.com, and, and the most famous one was when yeah they were finishing the high so V four race. Of them, wasn't there? There was uh, yeah there was Frodo, there was Whitfield, there was Carterfield, and there was Gemmel, uh, and then just behind them was a couple couple of others. I think uh, Gomez was just off the back, but it was a four way sprint finish, and this was when they had the massive amount of money. I I think it was five hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or something like that. It was a you wanted that first place because yeah, it was a yeah. massive drop off to second, and uh, Whitfield took it out. So and he's uh, pumped, eh? He's oh, yeah. pumped. Yeah, yeah, that'd be and, a cool feeling, eh? Yeah. So Brad Carterfelt's done and dusted. Uh, what are you saying about YouTube? Oh, so it's on k226.com, and I'm pl- plugging some of the websites that I really like. So k226.com is uh, has all the non WTC iron distance races, so great event directory. But they also have a lot of uh, links to the YouTube channels, and just three things that I saw on there. If you're still struggling through winter and you just want to look at a couple of YouTube things, uh, I see Lionel Sanders was posting a couple of. Um, uh, training clips only only very quickly fast forwarded through one but he was on the treadmill and he was just 
beating himself up to it was uh he was just killing himself daniela reef uh, was out doing some aero testing at a at a um at a velodrome so a velodrome so she's looking like she's going faster and then bevan a couple of weeks ago you were asking about what rinny's up to and so yeah. now there was the tim and rinny show they've started a youtube channel and uh she certainly looked like she was training pretty pretty solidly they're over in noosa so they split their time between noosa australia and boulder colorado so they have the kind of endless summer but it certainly looked like she was um training pretty solidly and uh so i think we'll see her back racing this season Okay, Jeff Curry sent through, lads. Uh, following John's great overview of the triathlon at the Commonwealth Games, I'd like to give a shout-out to one of our local members of the Lisbon Triathlon Club who will be representing Northern Ireland at the Games in April. James Edgar is only 19 and has been with our club since he started five years ago. James will be out with the big boys at only 14 years old would uh, yeah, and would always hold his own. He is one to look out for in April. He swims like a fish. Bikes like a beast and runs like the wind. He has been the Irish champion in the pool and on the track and at cross country. Last month, he ran at the Elmar, I'm going to say, pronounce, I don't know, pronounce, Armagh for Bevan. So oh, we got Armagh Street in, in Christchurch, Bevan. I oh, thought you yeah, did that yeah. one right. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right there, aren't you? Uh, 5K road race, which is one of the fastest fields in Europe, with 94 men running under 15 minutes. And he took he came thirtieth in a fourteen twenty seven. We're all massively proud of him, and who knows what can happen on the day. But he is one to look out for in the future. So look out for James Edgar. Now that again that reinforces my point from earlier in the show is you can be um, your fourteen mid mid fourteens for a five k. Yeah. He, he's nowhere in, in triathlon races yet. I mean I know he's a young good young up and coming fella. Well, I but, think this is a running race. Yeah, a running race, but still. That's pretty bloody fast, uh, oh, yeah. and he's not a, he's not like a world junior champion or anything like that. Uh, he finished. Uh, I'm just having a look at some of his results. He finished seventh at a European Cup race in uh, in Holton. Um, but I would say he. I think he's gonna he's gonna lift his game for the Commonwealth Games because he did race at the weekend in Grand Canaria and um, didn't go so well. And he finished 58th place. But it clearly sounds like he's got the wheels there to to do the business. But the thing is, at that level, there's there's like fifty guys that quick. They're so they are so so fast on the ITU circuit these days. I don't think they get the credit that they do deserve. The guys that are, are finishing sort of fifth through twentieth are pretty bloody fast. I say this Brooks Armour race is a pretty good road race. I'm not sure if it's just local guys, but if one guy went sub fourteen, you get another hand crush. Did you tell you that much? No. <laughs> yeah, you basically if you did if you did under fifty if you did fifteen. Minutes on the on the dot, which were, that was your aim, wasn't it, John? Fifteen? No, sixteen. Okay, well, you were like about second hundred. So <laughs> fifteen minutes got your ninety fifth. There you go. That's pretty impressive, uh, Jonbo. Just I've got to give a plug to Pyrenees Multisport. They've got an amazing camp coming up in uh, July through August. It's actually a three week camp. Starts in um, you get picked up in Milan in July. You've got five nights in Como, four nights in Bormio, six nights in Bellino, and five nights in Briançon. Um, and they are just going nuts. They're going to be going uh, doing loads of the amazing Italian passes, uh, Gothard, um, Gavier, Stelvio. Uh, 
Monte Grappa, the Gaul, um, Sistria, and then go. Then they go over into France, into the Alps, and go up Sistria, Isuard, Glibier, quite a fair. And uh, there's lots of loads of small, small ones in between. Also, go do some touristy stuff around Venice and, and so on. So, um, if you're an IM Talk listener and you're keen to do that, it is a three-week camp. Um, go to PyreneesMultisport.com and you'll be able to find it there. It's called the French Alps and Italian Dolomites 2018. Um, and if you say you'd listen to Iron Talk, um, Ian will look you out, look after you with a good price. Um, but it's a three-week adventure. It will be amazing. Oh, it'll be phenomenal. And they do a great job, the Pyramides multi-sport team. Okay, John, we're going to put the interview. So Johan Harry, he wrote the book Lost Connections. He actually wrote a brilliant book called Chasing the Scream about drugs and how we treat drugs in society about, about two or five or six years ago. And it's one of the most influential books on thought around drugs and society. But then he's recently brought out the book Lost Connections, which is around depression. And in the same way, he's kind of shaking up maybe the way we're looking at this problem in society. So it's a pretty great interview. So I'm going to put that on right now. Here is Johan Harry. Radio team, I'm very excited today to have um, an author who I have a lot of respect for. He's had uh, two books that have been very influential, one called Chasing the Scream and the latest one called Lost Connections. Uh, Johan, Harry, how are you? Yeah, really good. Really excited to be with you, Bevan. Thanks very much. We were just talking before we came on came on air about um, about this problem recently, where we can see each other, but this is obviously only for audio. This podcast, but I kept I'm always conscious when I do video things. I recently did a an interview where I didn't realise they were going to use the the video, right? Yeah. So I thought it was just the audio. So I was like scratching myself. <laughs> I was wearing this insanely aggressive T-shirt. I don't know if I can swear on your you, you on your can you, you can swear if you want by all means. It was a, a t-shirt that someone had given me and it just said, read a fucking book, you cunt. And <laughs> everyone watching this podcast must have thought I was this insanely aggressive person. And also, I'm always conscious, uh, when, I, when I'm in my flat in London, I always do my interviews with this bookcase behind me. And I suddenly had this moment of paranoia because do you remember when Pauline Hansen was revealed? Yeah. She did some interview and it was revealed that behind her she had loads of books by Hitler. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no way. Uh, this was years and years ago and suddenly i think obviously i do not have loads of book by, books by hitler and obviously i don't have any sympathy for pauline hansen but i was like uh, oh god what's, what's behind me what can i see that right the, years ago i went to iraq years ago when saddam was in power uh, to write something about it and uh, i had this big saddam hussein rug that i bought in baghdad and I remember I once did an interview, so I came to my flat to interview me, and I suddenly realized they were about to film me with this massive rug of Saddam Hussein behind me, which was very unfortunate. So at the last minute, I suppose, like, wait, let's do it from a different angle, shall we, right? Anyway, I'm glad that the viewers cannot see me. I remember one time years ago, I was interviewing some specialist on, like, nutrition, real, real toppy, and he was, like, big American guy, and he was talking about the importance of nutrition. I had a bottle of Coke and a bottle of chips and all behind me. And I, I, started, I was suddenly aware as I was doing the interview, I had all this behind me and I became really self-aware because I was trying to promote the right message and I was being this big contradiction and oh, jeepers, creepers. Also, the contrast between viewers seeing how like, you basically look like the embodiment of good health. Yeah, yeah. And I'm traveling around for two months and I'm like, just look like I've just died, basically. So I'm glad that people cannot see the contrast between you and me as well. Can we talk about that? You know, you know, your book is, um, you, you know, you're a very um, successful author. What's it like when a book comes out? You know, this is a book I'm, I'm sure is drawing a lot of attention and, you you know, PR is a pretty big part of the game. Just on a personal level, how do you manage the game of what you're doing right now? For me, it's really exciting because 
with with both my books, with with Chase and Scream, which was partly about addiction and how we've misunderstood what addiction is, and with this new book, Lost Connections, which is about how I think we've misunderstood what depression is, mm. it's really exciting because what you can see when you're speaking to people is their faces light up when they start to learn some of this stuff in the way that I lit up when I learned some of this stuff. So I think some of the books that I, you know, there's another book I'm writing, for example, um, which, you know, will not speak to the same kind of audience. I'm writing a biography of Noam Chomsky, the amazing American uh, linguist and philosopher and intellectual. And like, I don't think if I speak to ordinary people about that, their faces are going to light up and they're going to, I mean, I think Chomsky is incredible and really important, but so, you know, I'm aware that there'll be times when I write books, it won't be like this. But no, definitely when you explain some of these things, these incredible things that I learned from these experts about depression, about addiction, about anxiety, and you can just see people come to you and be like, fuck, why didn't, why didn't anyone tell me that before? Mm. It's mm. really exciting. So I think you really get off on, you know, the, the, the excitement of, of feeling you're telling people something important that they should know. And that I wish I had known, you know, when I was a 17 year old and I went to my doctor and explained that I had really bad depression. Um, I wish I'd been told all this stuff that I later learned. Actually, I was told, you know, um, a ridiculously oversimplified story, which I'm sure we'll get to. So let's start with your history. So let's give the audience, you know, assuming they know nothing about Johan Harry, what, what's your history before you did your two books? So, uh, well, I'm, you can tell from my slightly weird name that my parents are immigrants. My, uh, my mum and dad met in, in London when, uh, it's funny, it's maybe weird to call my mother an immigrant. She's Scottish. She regards herself as an immigrant in England, right? The only thing I've ever written that made my mother really genuinely angry was once years ago, I was in New York covering the Republican National Convention. And because of the Sting song, I called myself an Englishman in New York. Okay, nice. And they said, no fucking son of mine. Has <laughs> You've forgotten what they did to Mel Gibson. <laughs> She literally thinks that Braveheart is a documentary that was made at the time, right? She, even now, she refuses to believe the evidence that Mel Gibson is anti-Semitic. She goes, the English have planted this, right? Like, even Mel Gibson himself admits it, which is the English have made him say that. So they, they, my mum and dad lived next door to each other in Notting Hill when it was a right shithole. And... Um, they didn't, my mother didn't speak any, uh, my dad was from, my dad had run away from Switzerland. My dad didn't speak any English and my mum didn't speak any French or German. And they had what my mother calls a series of one night stands, which I've tried to explain as a concept that does not make sense. And uh, she got pregnant. They thought they had to get married. And uh, she often bursts into tears and says, he seems so nice when I couldn't understand what he was <laughs> Anyway, they're still together 50 years later. I, me and my brother and sister are the, the product. So, yeah, I, I grew up in London. They moved around quite a lot before I was born. But they, um, they, they, my dad was a, a cook and my mum was a barmaid. So they worked in different hotels in like crazy places, Iran, Berlin, loads of places. And uh, but I grew up here in London. Um, when I left university, I became, um, became a, a journalist, newspaper journalist. And then seven years ago, I started to write these these books that are kind of big kind of journey books where I kind of go all over the world and try to figure out the answer to these questions that are bothering me with, with Chasing the Scream, with the question I wanted to understand was what really causes addiction uh, and what can we do about it? And with this one, it was really what really causes depression and anxiety and what can we do about that? What was it like when you brought out Chasing the Scream? Chasing the Scream seems to have been a massively influential book. It's, it's a brilliant book. Um, and um, it's really opened a lot of people's eyes into maybe challenging their thinking in an area that lots of people can be quite set in their ways around. Um, what was it like to bring out a book that could have such an impact? You know, 
actually one of the most moving experiences I had was in Australia. The, the, so I think to me, the most interesting, I'm, I'm always wary when I meet people who write books and they say, and they're the start of writing their book. And I say, Oh, what's what, what you're writing about? And they know in advance everything they're going to say, right? Unless they're an expert who spent 20 years researching or something that's different. But, and I always think for me, I, I discover in my books what, what, the, the, my books are the story of the journey of trying to learn about these things. And, you know, sometimes it goes into different alleyways and different directions. So at the start, I didn't really know. No. So one of the reasons I wrote Chasing the Scream is one of my, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I didn't understand why, but as I got older, I realized we had addiction in my family and I wanted to help the people I loved with addiction problems and I ended up going on this big journey. I didn't realize how big it'd be at the start. I ended up going with 30,000 miles and sitting with people whose lives had been changed by addiction and by the war on drugs in really different places from a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn whose mother died when he was 13 to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel um, to the only place that's ever decriminalized all drugs with incredible results. And one of the big things I learned, and, and it was so exciting with Chasing the Scream to I'd say something that happened in Australia as well, but one of the things that was so exciting to me was realizing I had fundamentally misunderstood what addiction was. And actually, I think I only had the kind of, if I hadn't discovered this and seen the consequences of discovering this, I don't think I would have had the confidence to write the book that I've written about depression. Because actually, when I started writing this book about addiction seven years ago, I wanted to write the book about depression first, and I was too frightened to do it. Uh, if you have a story about your pain, even if that story isn't working very well, and my story that depression was just a chemical imbalance in my brain and just needed to be treated with drugs was not working very well for me. But even when it's not working, at least you feel like you know what's going on, right? It's like putting a leash on a wild animal. At least you know where it is. Mm. And there's something about if your story is threatened, it feels like there's a, the danger that you're letting this, this wild animal off the leash. You're not going to understand what's happening to you about very painful forces in your life. So I was very frightened to do it. It's a sign of how frightened I was to do it that I thought it'd be easier to, sp to write a book that required me to go and spend time with men for the Mexican drug cartel. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I went to, I went to Mexico, I spent a lot of time there just after the peak of the violence. But I remember when I went to interview this guy who I write about a lot in Lost Connection, in Chasing Scream, Rosalia Retta, who between the ages of 13 and 17 butchered or beheaded 70 people. And I remember on the way in, the prison guard said to me, so obviously we can't leave you on your own with him. He has beheaded 70 people. I was like, oh, good, thanks. And so I sat down with him. And about three minutes in, I turned around. And it was fucking, they fucking left me. It was on the way. Wow. Anyway, so you can see I was not beheaded. But, um, but no, the, the, so, so with, with Chasing the Scream, just to finish that thing about addiction, <clears throat> what I've learned a huge number of things, but just to give you the, the one example, um, most of us think that addiction, and there's really bad debate about ice in Australia at the moment surrounding this. Most of us think, have a story about addiction that we've been told for 100 years now, right? We think that addiction is caused by the chemical hooks in the drugs themselves, right? So we think if we kidnapped 20 people off the street in Wollongong or Sydney or whatever, and we forcibly injected them all with heroin every day for a month, like some villain in a Saw film, mm. um, at the end of that, they would all be heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. And that's what addiction is, right? That's not a totally false story. Chemical hooks do exist. But actually, uh, I, I learned 
that that story is that's only a very small part of what's happening. There's a much bigger picture we've missed. For example, in Britain, I'm in London at the moment. If I step out of this interview now and I get hit by a truck and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much better heroin than I could score it. You know, <laughs> it's medically pure, right? If any of your, loads of your listeners will have British grandparents, if any of your British grandparents have had a hip replacement operation in Britain, they've taken lots of heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by the chemical hooks, what should be happening to all these people in hospitals all over Britain, right? Really large numbers of them should be leaving and trying to score on the streets. Mm. This has been studied. Mm. It virtually never happens, right? And when I learned that, it just seems so weird. I didn't really understand it until I went to Vancouver and met an incredible man called Bruce Alexander. And I think the insight I learned from him really helped me to understand something different about depression as well. So Professor Alexander explained to me the story about addiction we've got that it's caused by chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century, right? They're really simple experiments. Um, your viewers, your listeners can try them at home if they want. You take a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. There you go. That's our story, right? But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. We're putting this rat alone in an empty cage which got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, they've got loads of cheese, they've got colored balls, anything a rat wants in life, right? And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing, they try them both. In Rat Park, they don't use the drugged water very much. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. Mm. So when they don't have the things that make life meaningful, they compulsively use the drug and kill themselves. When they do have the things that make life meaningful, they don't find the idea of being out of it all the time very appealing. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection. And that led to, so learning that led me to go to the places that actually built drug policies based on these insights, right? That instead of trying to fuck up the lives of people with addiction problems, we should love them and change their environment and help them turn their lives yeah. around. And the results have been absolutely incredible. Since Switzerland adopted a drug policy based on that, they have had they legalized heroin for people with addicts, for people with addictions. And um, since then, they have had zero heroin overdose deaths in 13 wow. years. Program, right? Um, so anyway, that, and I think the reason I mentioned this in relation to my new book, Lost Connections, I mean, there's lots of connections, if you excuse the pun, because we're talking about connection. But um, uh, I think what it gave me the confidence to see was, okay, I'd realized if you, go into if you go into the world of addiction, if you look at the best science, if you go to the places that have learned the lessons of the best science, you will see different ways of thinking and doing things, even though it can be painful to make that adjustment to thinking differently. And therefore, and that opens up very different solutions, ones that actually work. And I think that gave me the confidence to think, well, maybe if I do the same thing with depression, I will also find things that I should know and that will open up different kinds of solutions for me. Do you know what I mean, Bevan? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. It, um, it, it's allowed you to kind of challenge and see how you can shift the perception of the world. You know, that's really, it, it's, it's locked in its way in so many ways, I suppose is what we're saying. Yeah. And I think the, the thing about Australia, I mean, I was totally fascinated when I came to Australia and I'm really interested in the Australian drug debate and there's some, absolute heroes in Australia who've been fighting on this. I'd really recommend people look up and follow on Twitter, Dr. Alex Wodak, who's one of the great heroes in the world of um, the uh, resisting the drug work. I can tell you why in a minute, but the, in fact, I'll tell you why now, because I think people should totally celebrate Alex. Every Australian, they should be building statues of Alex, right? So mm -hmm. 
very early in the AIDS crisis, um, when we didn't even really know partly what was going on, Alex was a doctor in King's Cross in Sydney. And um, they kind of clocked quite early, okay, so this is transmitted in blood and semen. So they, they knew quite early on, okay, with gay men, we know what to do. Uh, we distribute condoms and all that. Alex was really involved in that. But with people with addiction problems, particularly, obviously, injecting drug users, uh, Alex could just see, okay, this is going to rip through people injecting drug users. It's going to be an absolute horror show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's devastating for them. And it's devastating for the wider population because, obviously, that becomes then a way it's transmitted into the wider population because intravenous drug users have sex with people who aren't intravenous drug users. Um And so Alex pioneered, at the same time as people were doing it in the Netherlands, Alex pioneered this really important thing. He said, we should distribute clean needles to people with addiction problems, injecting drug users, and we need to tell them that they need to use these clean needles, right? Mm -hmm. And at the time, so they started doing it. They completely went rogue. They just started doing it because he's like, this is a crisis. People are going to die. Huge numbers of people are going to die. We have to do this. And the police called Alex in and they were like, you've got to stop doing this. There were laws at the time against what were called a drug paraphernalia, right? So you weren't allowed to give people anything that would help. help. So Alex is called in. The police said, stop doing this. He's like, no, I'm saving these people's lives. I will continue doing this. It carries on doing it. It starts to spread. He's called in by the government minister, the health minister at the time, who says, stop doing this. This is immoral. This is unethical. Stop doing it. And he said, no. If you want, prosecute me under these laws, put me before a jury of 12 ordinary Australians, I will explain to them what I'm doing, and if they judge me to have you know, done something unethical, I'll go to prison, but I'm gonna do this. When he left the meeting in the elevator with him, one of the public, main public health advisors in Australia got in, and he just leaned forward to Alex, and he said, whatever you do, don't stop, right? And as a result of Alex's courage, needle exchange spread throughout Australia. This is one of the places where it established for the whole world that this worked. Incalculable number of people's lives, not just in Australia, but across the world, were saved by the courage he showed and his colleagues and, and the nurses and doctors he was working with. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we saved so many people's lives all over the world, because that that proved that it worked, right? What happened in, in King's Cross and in the Netherlands proved that this strategy worked. And that's so, I mean, he's just, he's a, he, I mean, and he now does this incredible work in Australia with um, uh, drug testing at music festivals. He's again at the absolute cutting edge yeah. of this, um, you know, again, you know, we can do a sensible thing that will save loads of people's lives. Or we can just say that people with who are drug users should just die, right? That's basically the choice. And um, so Alex is, yeah, everyone should follow Alex on Twitter and just and give him loads of love and praise because he's an amazing person. Well, I think there's an important point here is that, like, you know, if we look at the work you've done, you've really tried to challenge the stories as you talk about, you know, the, you know, what's the story that's influenced the decisions we've made that has got to, to where we are right now. And, and the drug case is a really good example because, you know, we're not in a good place in how we've responded to drugs. And if in any ways we've, the way we've responded has had a, a really negative effect on societies and homes and communities and so on. And unless we can change the problem we're trying to fix, we're going to end up on the same path. And, you know, and so for drugs and for depression, this is this is a huge problem. We've got, you know, we've got to make sure we're pointing the light at the right problem, don't we? That's a really good way of putting it. It's about reframing the problem. Mm. And when you and for depression, this was this was a very difficult thing for me to think about because you know, when I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor, I'd said that I had this 
feeling like pain was kind of bleeding out of me. I couldn't control it or regulate it. I felt very embarrassed about it. And my doctor told me a story about why I felt this way, right? He said, there's a chemical in people's brains called serotonin, makes them feel good. Some people naturally lack that chemical. You're clearly one of them. Solution is that we just need to drug you, right? So they gave me, um, it's called Siroxat or Paxil. It's marketed into different names. Um, and they gave me this drug. And I felt a tremendous amount of relief to be given that story. And when I started taking the drugs, I felt an enormous boost. And within a couple of months, this feeling of acute pain started to kind of bleed back through. So I went back to the doctor. They gave me a higher dose. Um, again, I felt better. Again, the sense of pain came back a little while later. Again, he gave me a high dose of basically in that cycle until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose and experienced a lot of side effects, huge weight gain, for example. Um, and at the end of those 13 years, there were these two mysteries that were really haunting me, which I wanted, which and lost connections is really a story of me trying to understand, find the answer to these mysteries. One was, why am I still depressed, right? I'm doing everything that I'm being told to do, according to this story. But the second was, why are there so many other people like me? I'm 39 years old. Every year I have been alive, depression and anxiety have risen across the Western world, right? I think, well, what's going on here? It can't just be something malfunctioning in our brains, because why would it be rising so much, right? There must be something else going on. So for Lost Connections, I ended up going on this big journey from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. Um, it really wanted to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And just people have very different perspectives on this. So I went to an, an Amish village in Indiana because the Amish have very low levels of depression. I wanted to figure out why. A city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make yeah. people feel better. Um, to a subject I know you care about uh, and I care about, uh, a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that would make them feel better. And I think I learned so many things. Um, partly, part of what I learned is I realized until... Until I was a te until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought depression was all in my head, meaning I just needed to man up. It was imaginary. I was just being weak, right? I don't think the phrase man up existed then, but that sentence, right? Uh, second, and then for the next 13 years, I thought depression was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain, right? And actually what I learned is there are real biological factors that make you more sensitive to depression that I write about in the book. But actually, mainly... The causes are not in our heads, mainly they're in the way we're living. I learned there are nine causes of depression and anxiety for which there is scientific evidence. Two of them are biological and very real, but the other seven are factors in so our social world, the way we live, and our psychology, the way we think about ourselves and our thoughts. And that opens up a very different way of of thinking about solutions. It means we have to expand the menu of options for thinking about how we respond. Now, of course, chemical antidepressants should remain on the menu and we can talk about their effects if you want. Um, but, but that opens up just a very different way of thinking about the, the what the problem is and how we solve it. Well, in your book, you talk quite, quite it's quite a powerful moment where you talk about how, the, you know, how grieving is being treated as depression or, or how depression is kind of being labeled as everything really. If, if there's a problem, you're depressed. And uh, you talk about, I can't remember, was it like a nine-step process that a doctor will go through to assess depression? And maybe expand on that a little bit, because it's quite mind-blowing. When I was listening to it, you almost get a little bit angry. You, uh, there's a frustration as a consumer of the content when you're listening to that. Yeah, this really shocked me. So in the 1970s, this thing was discovered by accident about depression that was so explosive that it was deliberately swept onto the carpet. So... The American Psychiatric Association 
the main body of psychiatrists in the US, decided quite sensibly that they were going to standardize how depression was was um, diagnosed in the US, right? So up to then, doctors just basically used whatever, you know, they just, it was like an impressionistic thing. They just, you know, they used their own judgment or they thought you were depressed or not. So the APA decided they're going to drop a checklist uh, that doctors could use. So what they did is they, they dropped a checklist of 10 symptoms, which are kind of obvious things, you know, crying a lot, feeling worthless and so on. And they said to doctors, if your patients show more than five of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, you should diagnose them as depressed, mentally ill, and do what you can to help them, right? So this list is sent out to psychiatrists all over the US and they start using it, and doctors, just general practitioners. But within a few months, they start to come back and go, I've got a bit of a problem here. If we use this checklist the way you've said, we should diagnose every grieving person as mentally ill. Because if you lose someone you love, you basically respond this way, right? And the APA were like, oh shit, we didn't mean that, right? That's not what we did. So they got back together and they invented something they called the grief loophole, right? Or they didn't call it that, other people called it that, the grief loophole, which basically said, okay, use this checklist to diagnose someone who's depressed unless they've lost someone they love in the past year, in which case it doesn't count. This is a normal reaction to something bad happening. They're not mentally ill. It's, it's okay, right? And then psychiatrists started using that guidance. But that started to beg a really kind of awkward question, right? Where they go, well, hang on a minute. We're meant to tell our patients depression is just a brain disease and we just identify it using a checklist. Except there's one situation where actually that doesn't apply and this is a perfectly understandable response. Well, hang on. Why is that the only situation? Why is someone you love dying the only situation where you're not mad if you feel this way? What if you've lost your job? What if you've lost your home? What if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years, right? There's a whole range of things that you could, but as, as one of the experts on this, um, Dr. Joanne Cassiatore put it to me, once you admit that, once you admit that depression is a response to context and deeper social forces, you just need a whole system overhaul in how we deal with these things, right? Once you start admitting context is the most important thing, well, that blows a hole in the whole system. The system's not designed for that, right? Mm. So as, as, um, so what they did, this was such an inconvenient debate, the American Psych um, Psychiatric Association just got rid of the grief loophole. It doesn't exist anymore. So now, as Dr. Ca Dr. Cassatore, who writes about this brilliantly, she, she lost her own baby um, in childbirth, tragically, her daughter, Cheyenne. Um, and, and she now works with survivors of traumatic grief. And she says, you know, now, because they got rid of the grief, grief loophole, you can be diagnosed immediately when your child dies if you're... And in fact, 9% of parents who lose a child are diagnosed and drugged in the first 48 hours. Wow. And, and as she put it, that shows we just don't get pain. We don't understand what this is, right? Grief is not a malfunction, right? We grieve because we've loved someone and they're gone. And I think it's really important to understand, I think it's a coincidence, that grief and depression have the same symptoms. Because in a way, what I think grief is, sorry, what I think depression is, is grief for your own needs not being met, for your own life not going how it should. Actually, I've just realized, sorry, I've just realized I stupidly forgot to plug in my laptop when we started yeah. talking. Can I just grab yeah, it? Yeah, you, you go for it. You go for it. I can pause this. Sorry, I want I want to keep hearing you, so I'm, I'm quite happy for you to grab the power. <laughs> Great. Uh, let me just... Oh, that's not going to reach. Will that reach? Let's see. Yeah, that reaches. Um, 
yeah, so I'm ready to start. I just I've got to pick yeah, up from that. I can, I can I can edit that. It's all good. So, everyone listening to this show knows that they have natural physical needs. Obviously, mm-hmm. right? You need food. You need water. You need shelter. You need clean air. If I took them away from you, you would be in terrible trouble really quickly. There's there's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. Right? You've got to feel you belong. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people see you and value you. You've got to have autonomy. You've got to have a sense of the future that makes sense to you, right? And our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But there's really good evidence that we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs that people have. And that is what, it's not the only thing that's going on here, but that is one of the big drivers of our crisis in depression, anxiety, and addiction. That, that if you're living in a culture that doesn't meet people's needs, where it doesn't fit with our human nature, and I can talk about some of the very specific ways that that's happening. You know, if you have a society of people who are profoundly lonely, who've been taught that life is about money and status, who, who think that life is about screaming at each other through screens, that's a society that's going to have a depression and anxiety crisis for a really good reason, right? That's not what you need as a human being. That's not meeting your deeper needs. And if you then tell those people that actually the reason they feel so shit is just because they've got a chemical imbalance in their brain, it prevents the society from understanding why we have this crisis in the first place. And it prevents us from finding the solutions to those deeper problems. Mm, yeah, I, I love the analogy you do of that, that grieving is, is or, or depression is grieving for the things that are fundamentally important to us. And um, that's a really good way of kind of putting it. So you're saying there are deeper things that society is pushing us towards. Do you want to dig a bit deeper into that? Yeah. So I talk about these nine causes of depression, anxiety, of which I could find evidence. And um, so I'll give you, give you um, a couple of examples that I think will just immediately, people will just know this in their lives or in people they know, certainly. So I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. Mm-hmm. So I started to look at what's the evidence about how, how people feel about their work, right? And um, I was quite struck by it. So Gallup did the most detailed study of this uh, in uh, Britain, the US, Australia, most developed countries, took two years to do this study. What they found is 13% of us, one three percent like our jobs most of the time. 13. 13. Wow. 60, I know, I know, well, it gets worse. 63% of people are what they call sleepwalking through their work. So they don't like it, they don't hate it, they just kind of tolerate it. And 24% of people fucking hate and fear their jobs, wow. right? So you think, I was like, what? that means 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of their waking life. You're almost twice as likely to hate your job as like it. Right? I was like, whoa, could that be having some effect on our mental health, right? Yeah. Especially since the thing that we don't want to do is expanding over more and more of our lives. The average person now answers their first work email at 7.48 a.m. and leaves work at 7.15 p.m., right? This is most of our lives, right? So... I started to look for evidence and I discovered this absolutely another amazing Australian uh, uh, social scientist professor called Michael Marmot had discovered in the 1970s what causes depression at work. I can tell you how if you want. I tell the story in the book because the story of how he discovered it is really important. It helps us to understand what's going on for us. But I'll just give you the headline. The biggest factor, not the only one he discovered, but the biggest factor is if you go to work tomorrow and you feel controlled, so you have low or no choices you are much more likely to become depressed. You're also actually much more likely to have a heart attack, right? And because uh, you're flooded with stress. 
And 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 I think that connects to I'm going a little bit beyond what Professor Marmot would say about this now, but I think that connects to what we're saying about psychological needs, right? People need to feel their lives have meaning and purpose. And if you're controlled all the time, it's hard to feel that your life has meaning and purpose, right? Um, and, and, and I learned that there are solutions to that. Now, I, I, I misunderstood what Professor Marmot was telling me at first, right? I thought he was saying, okay, so you've got this 13% elite at the top who have nice lives and nice jobs, and they're going to, you know, they're going to be happy. And everyone else is condemned to the shit, right? And I thought about, you know, my dad was a bus cook and then a bus driver. My, my brother's a delivery guy. My mother was a barmaid, then worked in a shelter. You know, I was like, wait, are we saying that they're just condemned to have, to be depressed, right? And he said to me, you know, you, you don't understand. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. And it turns out there's a different set of solutions to that. So in Baltimore, I went and met a really interesting person called Meredith Keogh. Meredith had been working, well, Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night just sick with anxiety, right? She had an office job. It wasn't the worst office job in the world, as she explained, you know, she wasn't being bullied or harassed, but it was really monotonous and she just couldn't stand the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life in this fucking office just being bored, right? So with her husband, Josh, one day, she did this quite bold thing. Meredith, um, so J Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a kid in Baltimore. And, you know, that's very controlled work. It's pretty insecure work. Um, and one day, Josh and his colleagues in the bike store had just said, what does our boss actually do? Right? They liked their boss, but they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money. Right? What's going on here? <laughs> decided they were going to set up a, a bike store that ran on a different principle. So the bike store they'd worked in before and the office Meredith had worked in before were corporations. Right. So you have a boss at the top who gives orders to everyone below like it's an army. Right. What they set up was a store works in a different way it's a democratic cooperative so that means they don't have a boss they make all the decisions together by voting big important decisions they share out the shitty tasks and the better tasks so no one gets stuck with just the shitty tasks they of course share the profits and what was so fascinating going and spending time with them was how many of them explained that they this is totally in finding with professor marmot's science how many of them used to be depressed and anxious when they were controlled but in this new environment, we're not depressed and anxious most of the time, right? Now, it's important to say, it's not like, you know, they used to fix bikes and now they've gone off to become Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fix bikes before they fix bikes now. The difference is the factor that makes people depressed, which is being controlled, right? And you can, as Josh put it to me, there's no reason why any business should be run in this way that causes depression, right? Imagine how many people you know who are currently depressed and anxious would feel very differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace where with their colleagues, they set the priorities, they figured out how things should be. If there is a boss, he's elected by them, accountable to them, uh, where they get a share of the profits rather than, and you can see how that's a very different way of being, right? One that it taps much more into human creativity, our need for control, our need to, you know, to control our environment. It's like taking the rat out of that first isolated cage and putting them into rat park, right? Um, and and so that's one of the kind of um, nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, which open up a very different kind of set of solutions. Now, that's one of the very big solutions that requires a, a big fight. There are kind of some that have, you know, solutions that are more amenable to people trying them in their everyday life more directly. But, but you can see how, again, imagine saying to, I think about how many people I know who are stuck in jobs through no fault of their own, um, jobs that are very controlled, 
and who are depressed and have gone to their doctor and been told, you know what, this is just a chemical imbalance in your brain, right? Lacking serotonin. Actually, it's migrated now. Now they say you lack dopamine, right? Um, and you think about how ridiculously simplistic that is. It's not that there's no truth in that. There are real brain changes that happen when you're depressed, of course. Some of those real brain changes make it harder to get out of depression. I write about how in, in Lost Connections. But, but we've been told this, this ludicrously simplistic idea. And actually, in a way, partly what I'm trying to do in Lost Connections is restore to people things that at some level they already know, right? Not everything in the book is something you'll already know, obviously. And there's lots of detail and lots of solutions they might not know. But pretty much everyone is, if you're stuck in a job you can't stand, are you more likely to be depressed, right? It's not, you don't have to be Einstein to figure out the answer to that, right? yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, it's also really interesting when we think about the modern time because, you know, you say that, you know, 67% or 77% of people don't really like what they do. Um, when we think about that, we also are spending more time in work, so we're more time poor. So then when we have time, like one of the disconnections is disconnection to other people. You talk about a lot in the book. And I, I have a running business, business Johan, and, and we really try to target – beginner exercises it's, it's our real big target market um and we want we want them to run so we we set in this goal of running 5ks and we kind of build them towards you know how do you take someone who's really insecure in one area of their life and have a history of proof of failure how do you make that person win and it's a real it's a real kind of question we've put a lot of thought into and we really we do lots of things so we socially manipulate them so that they make friends in the group and all these types of things but one thing we discover is that that so many of them come up to us and say I was depressed before I joined and this has really helped my depression now we can point and say well exercise is really good for them but actually one of the things that comes through is they build friendships around a healthy endeavor but if we look at what's happening in work life is we're working more so time for social is one of the things that gets really neglected. And when they join our group, suddenly they've, you know, we've, we've created a world where they actually want to turn up, which is really important. But actually we're building friendships and they don't really understand why that's important for the journey. But nowadays, that's it. Like, you know, I'm not a religious person, but one of the downfalls of the modern, the loss of the church is the loss of the community. Um, you know, the church was good at community. And in New Zealand, for example, the church influence is very much gone. It's it's very much a niche thing now. But we haven't replaced it with sense of community. And it's one of the problems. Because we're working so much, we are losing those connections. And because we think we need to chase things like money and status and all those types of things. And you, and you talk about that loss of connection to other people. And I imagine it, there's, there's almost this interweb, isn't there, of... We're, it's so obvious why we're pushing to people towards depression yeah you put that so well and there's so many things in that that I, I have thoughts about and that I learned stuff about and actually Australia is really quite an extreme example on this about the loss of social connections and it's one of the reasons why Australia has the highest um, number of prescriptions of antidepressants chemical really? antidepressants in the whole world after Iceland wow. you're number two in the world per capita and um, yeah the, the loneliness thing you know, there's this amazing study in the US. It's a really simple study. Just asks Americans, how many close friends do you have you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Now, the most common answer, it's not the average, but the most common answer is none. Wow. Right? That's, that's People, sad when you hear that. Like, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, it catches your heart, doesn't it? Oh, and think about, it's funny I think about this today because very sadly, the... Um, 
one of the great scientists who made a lot of breakthroughs about this, who I interviewed a lot for Lost Connections, actually died yesterday. So there was this amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who I interviewed a lot, who was the leading expert on loneliness. And he discovered loads of things. So when we're stressed, we get flooded with a, a hormone called cortisol. Um, and what he, one of the things he showed, and he made so many amazing experiments, is he showed that being acutely lonely releases as much cortisol as being punched in the face by a stranger. Wow. Right? Explain to me the the you know one of the reasons for this is you think about the circumstances where we evolved right why are you and me alive bevan one of the reasons we're alive is because our ancestors on the savannas of africa were really good at one thing they weren't bigger than the animals they took down they weren't stronger than the animals they took down but they were much better at cooperating they were much better at banding together into tribes and working together and every instinct human beings have is to do that, right? If you think about the circumstances where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really fucking good reason. You were about to die, right? You were in terrible danger, right? So you can see why that would be as stressful as being punched in the face, right? Mm. Um, and, 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 and we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes, right? It's, it's profoundly unnatural what we've done. We imagine that we can live alone. We tell ourselves stories that we can live alone. Uh, we tell ourselves we can even raise children alone, which is remarkable. It's a study in Britain that found the average British child now spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner. Really? Because or a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day. And our kids don't get that because people are afraid to let their kids go out because they don't know who's on the street. Okay? They don't have a community, right? It's, 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 you can see how these, these things Feed, feed off each other but and i think you're totally right and i think that the, the work that you do which is really important there's a there's a really interesting program that i think gives gives a lot of scientific backing to what you're to what you're saying so there was this one of the heroes of my book lost connections is this wonderful guy called sam everington he's a doctor in east london where i lived for a really long time sadly he was never my doctor this is in a poor part of east london and He's a general practitioner. Loads of patients were coming to him, as you can imagine, with depression and anxiety. And Sam was really uncomfortable because, like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they do have some role. But he just thought, this isn't solving the reasons why they're depressed and anxious in the first place, right? Which is why it has quite a limited effect. So one day he decided to do this experiment. A woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with absolutely crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And he said to Lisa, Look, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you the drugs. But I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was they called Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It backed onto a park, but basically dogs were going shit in it. And he said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is turn up twice a week with a group of other depressed and anxious people. I'll come and support you. And we're going to turn Dog Shit Alley into a beautiful garden. Right? First time first meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? But they started to get to know each other. One of the interesting things is, and this would be true of your fitness program as well, um, they had something to talk about that wasn't how shit they felt, right? So much of the how we, basically we offer depressed and anxious people two things, drugs, or you can go and talk to someone about how terrible you feel, right? But what they had was actually they could start to learn about gardening, right? None of them, they were in the city, East London, they didn't know anything about gardening. They started to put their, literally put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's lots of evidence that exposure to the natural world, even gardens, is a very powerful antidepressant. Well, the same with running, because you get people in nature, you know, like we, we get people running in nature and suddenly, you know, they, you talk about na the importance of nature in the book. It's a similar thing, you know, suddenly people, we take them to these runs and they go, oh my God, 
you know, and it's right there, but they don't use it, you know. But anyway, sorry, keep going. No, no, totally. I think it's really important. And actually, one of the experts I interviewed, an amazing woman called Dr. Isabel Benke, who you should totally have on your podcast. You'd love her. Um, she said, you know, a, a, a human animal that's not moving through its natural habitat cannot be a healthy human being, right? Um, and, 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 and so several things happened in this group, right? One of them was, as they got to know each other, um, the people in the group started to do what human beings do when we know each other and care about each other. They started to solve each other's problems, right? So to give an extreme example, one of the guys in the group was sleeping on the bus, the local public bus, right? Lisa was, Lisa and the other people in the group were like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus, mate. You know, they started pressuring the local authority to get him housed and they succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years. They felt great, right? And there's lots of evidence doing something for someone else is a much more powerful antidepressant than do something for yourself. And they, they start to learn this garden. The garden starts to bloom. People start congratulating them on how beautiful the garden is. Um, and the way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. Now, there was a, a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for a kind of obvious reason. It's dealing with the reasons why they were so depressed in the first place. Two of the reasons. They were disconnected from other people. They were disconnected from the natural world. And this is one thing I saw everywhere in the world that I went. The, the solutions that worked best were the ones that dealt with the reasons why people felt so bad in the first place, right? Those are, I think we need to expand our idea of what an antidepressant is. And one of the people who helped me to realize this, it was, um, it's funny, uh, this story really struck me at the time. I went to interview this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced there in 2001. And the Cambodian doctors hadn't heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And Derek explained. And they were like, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the fields. But apparently it's incredibly painful to work underwater with an artificial limb. And I imagine it was pretty fucking traumatic because in the field we have blown up, right? So he started, <laughs> you know, not rocket science, is it? He started, doesn't want to get out of bed, classic depression, right? So they said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. He said, what was it? They explained they went and sat with him. They listened to him they realized that his pain made sense, right? It wasn't some malfunction. Um, they figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this environment that was making him so distressed. They bought him a cow. Within a month, he stopped crying. He was absolutely fine. His depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, what that sounds, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's just a problem in your skull, that sounds like a bad joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow, right? But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization, the leading body, medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. Your pain makes sense. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs and you need love and support to get those deeper needs met. Now that is what, how we should think about an antidepressant, right? Alongside chemical antidepressants, it's about expanding the menu, not taking anything off the menu. And I thought about that, and another example of that, that I think was really relevant to what you were saying about your, your fitness group, that partly we don't have the time to do this, right? Yeah. That it's very, yeah. you can say to someone, you know, so for example, one of my closest relatives, you know, is a struggling single mother who works every hour she can. She gets home at eight o'clock at night, absolutely exhausted, 
too tired to even watch Coronation Street or cook something for herself, right? Um, now, you can say to her, hey, your job is to democratize your workplace and reconnect with her. I mean, it's, it would just be cruel, right? Yeah. I mean, she can't, she literally can't do that, right? So you look at, well, what antidepressants can give people back time? And it's a really interesting experiment that did this in Canada in the 1970s. It had really interesting results. So the Canadian government in the 1970s chose a town at random. They appear to have genuinely put a pin in the map, right? And they chose a town called Dauphin in Manitoba. Uh, people who know Canada, it's about four hours out of Winnipeg. It's quite a rural town. And they said to loads of people in this town, from now on, we're going to give all of you a guaranteed basic income. It was the equivalent of 12,000 US dollars in today's money. I, I'm terrible at Australian money. What's that in Australian? Yeah, yeah, probably 20,000, 20, something like that. Yeah. Right, 20 grand in Australian money. Yeah. In today's money, so adjusted for inflation and everything. Mm. They said to them, you don't have to do anything in return for this. Um, and there's nothing you can do that means we're going to take it away. We just want you to have a good life, right? So they give them this money in monthly installments. And it was monitored by this brilliant scientist I interviewed called Dr. Evelyn Fourchet to figure out well, what would happen, right? Loads of interesting things happened. Um, people spent more time with their children. People spent more time studying. Nobody gave up work, but what some people did is hold out for better jobs so they didn't feel pressure to accept any job that came along. So work standards overall rose. But the biggest and most important thing there was a huge fall in mental health problems. Mm. Mental health problems that were so severe people had to be shut away in hospital fell by 9% in just three years, right? Mm. And, and I think that, and again, Dr. Forger, who did the research, they said to me, this program was an antidepressant, right? And, and I think that tells us something really profound and important. Um, it, partly it tells us that financial insecurity causes depression and anxiety. And again, you realize how disgusting it is to just tell people it's a chemical imbalance in their brains, right? This is partly why the UN's leading doctor on World Health Day last year said we need to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances, right? But, um, but, but, but even more importantly, I think it speaks to the people in your program and a lot of people who would really benefit from your program, who just, like my relative, who's just too exhausted to do it, Twelve grand, twelve thousand dollars a year would give her the cushion to do that, right? Yeah. That she does not have at the moment. It would give people a margin to begin to change their lives that we can't, that we don't have at the moment, right? There's lots of reasons why I think a universal basic income reduces um, mental health problems and has lots of other positive benefits. But that's one of them. This is why President Obama, in his, um, someone pointed out to me in all my interviews, I say President Obama and I never say President Trump. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> The last days of his um, term said, you know, he thinks a universal basic income will have to be introduced in the next 20 years, partly to deal with the huge dislocation that's going to come through technology, disrupting so many jobs and making jobs so insecure. And, and, and I think this is a way of giving people back a sense of the future. It's interesting. I interviewed a guy called Richard Dennis, who wrote the book on effluenza a couple, couple episodes ago. And, and it's just how this is all interlinked, you know, that kind of what are we chasing as a society? And he was a really big advocate. As you increase wealth, why take wealth? Why not get time? You know, and, and then to lead on to what you're saying there is, you know, if we if we aren't chasing the material thing that ultimately just creates dissatisfaction, and we creating a life that's around what was really fulfilling to us in our community and, you know, the connections you talk about, you know, sure, there's an aspect of, of the people who are just struggling so much, they need to get that security. But many of us are chasing the wrong thing. And influenza is that kind of idea that my value is based on what I own. You know, if, if you still were to say, well, actually, if I were to work 
you know, instead of getting a pay rise, give me an extra day of work each week. It's I know the universal basic income is going to be potentially quite powerful, but also our approach to what our, we're chasing in life is really important as well. Yeah, this is one of the things I found most challenging in the research for the book because I realized how much it had played out in my own life. Um, so everyone knows that junk food has taken over our you know, diets and made us physically sick, right? I say this with no sense of superiority. I spent 10 years living on KFC, basically. Your story um, in the book about how they give you a, a, like a present for being the best, best user, that was quite funny. It was a bleak day in my life. KFC <laughs> gave me a massive Christmas card addressed to our best customer. But, um, yeah, and recently, I don't know if this was reported in Australia, but we recently had a KFC shortage in yeah, Britain. Yeah, we did see that, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, although I haven't eaten at KFC in years because I changed my diet, but um, loads of people who haven't seen me in a while text me saying, yo, honey, you okay? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, no, the, the, but, but what's fascinating is, so we know junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. What's interesting is the kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. Mm. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to feel like shit, right? It's not an exact quote from Confucius, but it's the gist of what he said, right? Um, but weirdly, no one had scientifically investigated this until this amazing man I got to know, Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And he did this really important research, started 25 years ago. <clears throat> it's now an extraordinary body of research. So, um, which shows the more you think life is about money, and the more you think life is about how you look to other people, the more depressed you will become, the more anxious you will become, uh, and the worse you will, actually worse your overall health will be, right? You even experience pain more intensely. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, so he partly explains that there's, um, every everyone listening to this, everyone, we're all humans, are a mixture of two kinds of motivation, right? To put it crudely. So imagine you play the piano in the morning. I'm totally unmusical, but maybe you're not. I, I play if piano, you, so there you go. Every day, I love I, it. Yeah. yeah. If you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that's called an intrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're just doing it because you love it. It gives you joy. That's you me. want to be in that moment, right? If you play, now imagine you played the piano, I don't know, not 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 because you love it, but because your parents were really pressuring you to be a piano maestro and that was their dream, not yours. Or you play it in a dive bar that you hate just to pay the rent and you can't stand it. Or I don't know, to impress a woman, maybe there's some piano fetishist out there, like I'd be really into that. Yeah, that would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it for something you get some for the joy of the moment, you're doing it for something you get out of it, right? Mm -hmm. And we're all a mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic motives, obviously, uh, and, and we vary throughout our lives. But Professor Kasser showed two things. The more your life becomes dominated by extrinsic values, the more anxious and depressed you'll become. And as a culture, we have become much more driven by extrinsic junk values. Right? Think of junk values. Uh, the idea that you should live your life according to how you look to other people and how much money you've got, I think is like kind of KFC for the soul, right? It's made us mentally unwell. And he shows lots of reasons why this is the case. Uh, and I go through them in Lost Connections. I'll give you two, two examples. One is the more you're driven by junk values, um, the less you experience something that really gives people joy. So one of the things that, that most gives humans joy and most relieves unhappiness and depression are what are called flow states, right? Yeah. So there are moments when, for me, it's writing. For you, I imagine it's running and the yeah. piano, yeah. as you can see, my lack of cheekbones, it's definitely not running for me. And the, um, which is a moment when you're doing something you love and you're just, you get into the zone and you're just flowing into it and time seems to fall away and you're just in it, right? 
Yeah. That's that's a flow state. People who are more driven by extrinsic values experience a lot fewer flow states, right? And you can see why. So imagine you're in your mode where you're playing the piano in the morning and you're loving it. And then suddenly you think, am I the best piano player in Christchurch today, right? Uh, how do I compare to all the other piano players? How much am I going to get paid for this fucking piano playing, right? You can see how that would jolt you out of the flow state. That would be, you'd be suddenly in an extrinsic mode. How do I seem to other people, right? How is the Instagram video of me playing this piano going to look, right? You can see how it would jolt you out of it. Yeah. Um, so that's partly one of the reasons why, why it makes people feel so much worse. Another is it actually leads to poorer quality relationships. So I'll give you an example. I need to check the exact wording of this, but, uh, and it sounds like I'm making a dig. I don't mean this is a, a dig, but in 2009, Melania Trump went to speak at NYU to the students there. And one of the students asked her something like, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she replied, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Mm. Right. Think about what that means about their relationship. It shows how much it's motivated by extrinsic. And think about how that makes that relationship more insecure. So Melania Trump knows if she got fat, it's over, right? Donald Trump knows if he ceased to be rich, it's over. Yeah. You can see how that kind of extrinsically motivated relationship would be much more insecure than, say, Barack and Michelle Obama's relationship, who I'm sure would say they and would feel that they would love each other even if they lost all their money and they were living in a shack and would love each other even if one of them got horribly burned in a fire and, you know, uh, looked completely different, right? Yeah. So you can see how that would be more, because that's an intrinsic relationship, it's a more secure relationship. And the more you become extrinsically motivated, the more you judge people by by how they look or what they've got, and the more you expect yourself to be judged by how you look and what you've got, the worse you will feel. So I think it's, again, one of these hidden factors that's driving up depression and anxiety. Well, it's also really fascinating because, you know, one of the ones you talk about is the, this, this idea of a hopeful future, secure future. And there's a lot of people who actually have that already, but because they are chasing the extrinsic values, they think they need more of the thing they've already got. So they're creating a sense of, I am insecure about my future, even though the evidence is probably in front of them proving that they don't need to be. So they're, they're you know, one of the disconnected from proof that actually probably shows them, even if you just say, look, look at your finances, you're going to be okay. Um, but because I'm chasing, I need to be with 10 million to be secure in the world, I'm actually, that's actually causing big problems for you as well. Even though, you know, if you look at your life, you're probably fine. Well, we, but I don't think that's a coincidence that people are made to feel like that. We live in a machine that's designed yeah. to feel like that. Yeah. More 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own last name, right? Yeah. So from the moment yeah. you're born, you're immersed in a machine that's telling you through advertising and the wider system, you have got the, the, the you know, advertising is like the ultimate frenemy, right? It's saying to you, oh, babe, I think you're great. I love you. If only you didn't stink so much. I'm just telling <laughs> your friend right yeah and then of course yeah. it's, and it's built upon i mean in advertising this is called invented wants right mm. you, you, you have to be making people feel inadequate in order to sell them the solution and you have to keep making them feel inadequate so they keep buying the solution right mm. actually <clears throat> you know sometimes you get an extreme example where dove did where people it's so extreme that people notice it but most of the time we don't even notice it so for example about 10 years ago dove did a campaign where they said uh uh, we're here to relieve women of their shame of their armpits because your armpits are really wrinkly. Even if you shave them, apparently they're wrinkly and disgusting. And we've invented this new product that will make your armpits smooth, right? And of course, if you'd said to our grandmothers, 
you know, oh, do you feel ashamed about your armpits? They're like, what the fuck are you talking about, right? Like the, you know, and so you can see how that's the creation of, it's pretending to solve, sell you a solution. In fact, yeah. it's selling you a problem yeah. Yeah. that you then have yeah. to solve, right? Um, now that's an extreme example. That was so extreme that a lot of people went, ah, fuck you, I'm perfectly happy with my armpits, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but we don't see that actually we've been made to feel that way the whole time, right? We've been made to, uh, not necessarily with our armpits, but you know, you know that the wider process is playing out all the time and part of the solution is um is one of the reasons why sao paulo one of the biggest cities in brazil just banned advertising banned all outdoor mm -hmm. advertising right and it was fascinating going there and how many people talked there have been no good studies of this yet how many people talked about how it had improved their mental state right and it was interesting professor Casa has shown with a, another social scientist going to be called jill twenge um that um the more the higher uh, am i gonna get this right uh, trying to phrase it the way they did i think this is right the higher the higher a proportion of GDP in the US is spent on advertising, the more, more money gets spent on advertising as a proportion of GDP, the higher the level of anxiety teenagers experience, right? And you can see why, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, it's about these deeper things. Now, again, you can see how absurd it would be to say that that is the result of a chemical imbalance in people's brains, right? There are real biological factors, but it's missing the point to say that, right? What we have to do yeah. is deal with that. And I go through in the book various ways as a society, we can deal with that, that problem of, of, of junk values. Unfortunately, actually, um, I have to go in about five minutes. Yeah, but the, yeah, that's, that's cool. That's cool. We can wrap it up. Um, just, just maybe lastly then, um, for those who are listening to this, you know, because the book is so powerful. Um, and obviously I recommend I've, I've, I've been telling everyone read it even if you're not the press it's a book we all need to read because it also reinforces what you should be putting your focus on in life you know it, in many ways it's a guideline of like it's interesting I spoke to a guy a guy I know really well and he has suffered with depression quite badly and in some areas he's really strong so like meaningful work he's there but then the sense of security in life is you know so in many ways he's pushed himself towards the areas strong and neglecting the other areas but what would be your message for those who are listening today and going oh my god he's talking to me you know what would be because obviously we want to create change um and what would be your message to that person i would tell them a story loads of the things i learned from the book um i learned from these experts and intellectually but there were loads of points where it fell into place for me emotionally. And I would tell them a story about one of the places that happened to me most powerfully. Um, in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a Turkish-German woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and put a sign in her window. She lived on the ground floor. And the sign said, I got a notice, something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself, right? This was a big housing project where it's a very, it, was a, it had initially been a quite poor and undesirable part of Berlin. It's called Koti. So basically only people who'd lived there for years and years were recent Turkish immigrants, gay people and punk squatters, right? Who you can imagine looked at each other with a lot of mutual incomprehension. And um, no one really knew each other, but people saw this sign and a lot of people were being evicted because the rents had been going up so much. People started to knock on Nuria's door who didn't know her and say, oh, I saw your sign, do you need any help? And she said, basically, fuck you, I don't want any help, I'm going to kill myself. And one day, um, this was the summer actually of the revolution in Egypt, a couple of, and people have been seeing this on TV, a couple of the guys who lived on the, uh, the, the estate, the housing project, um, got talking and they noticed that so there's this big thoroughfare that runs through this housing project into the center of Berlin, into Mitte. And they were like, 
if we just blocked the road for a day and we wheeled Nuria out and we sat in the middle and we protested, they'd probably let her stay in her flat. Probably we'd get a bit of political pressure to keep our rents down. Why don't we do it? So they did it. And Nuria was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let you wheel me out into the road. <laughs> they got into the road and they protest for a day and the media did come. Uh, and there was a lot, you know, a fair bit of news coverage in Berlin about it. And then at the end of the day, <clears throat> the police came along and basically said, okay, you've had your fun, take it all down. And they were like, well, no, you, you haven't told Nuria she can stay. And actually we all want a rent freeze because we can't carry on like this. And there's one of my favorite people at Cottis is one called Tanya Gartner, who is, she's one of the punks. She, she wears a tiny miniskirt, even in Berlin winter. She's hardcore. And um, Tanya had uh, one of those things um, that make a really loud noise at soccer matches, a klaxon. Yeah. In her flat. So she brought it down and she said, OK, what we're going to do, we're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade. If the police come to take it down before Nuria is told she can stay, before we've got a rent freeze, let off this klaxon and we'll all come down and stop them, right? So people start signing up to man this barricade. They've never met each other, don't know, don't know each other. And really unlikely combination of people. So Nuria, very religious Muslim in a headscarf, was paired with Tanya, who's in a tiny little miniskirt, right? I think they did the Thursday night shifts, so I remember rightly. And the first few nights they sat there, super awkward, they didn't talk to each other very much. As they began to talk to each other, they thought we've got nothing in common, right? Start to talk about their lives. They realized they had a crazy amount in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 17 years old uh, with her two young children. And the point was that she was meant to raise money, uh, enough money to send back for her husband who stayed in their village in Turkey. After she'd been in Germany for a year, she got news from home that her husband had died. So she's stuck on her own in Berlin with these two kids in this country she doesn't really understand. And um, she told Tanya something she'd never told anyone. She'd always told people her husband died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which was regarded as a kind of disease of poverty. She'd been really ashamed of that. Tanya started to tell Nuria about her life. Um, Tanya had been, she'd been thrown out by her middle-class family when she was 15. She'd come to Cotty. She'd lived in a squat, kind of punk squat. She got pregnant when she was 15. They realized they'd both been on their own with young children in this place, and they hadn't known each other. Um, and these kind of pairings were happening all over Cotty. So there was a, 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 a young guy called Mehmet who was, I think he was 17 at the time. His family were Turkish, kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. He got paired with this grumpy old German, white German guy who loved Stalin. Um, and, and the old guy started helping him with his homework as they did the, the night shift. Right. And, and these pairings were happening all over, all over, all over Cotty opposite the housing project. There's a gay club called Zudblock, which is run by a guy I love called Rickard Stein. Um, to give you a sense of what he's like, his previous, the previous gay place he owned was called Cafe Anal. They are, <laughs> in like, your face, quite, in your face. And, uh, and initially when they'd opened this gay club, um, you know, you can imagine there's a lot of religious Muslims there that people have been really angry. They'd smashed the windows, some of them. And the people at Zudblock started saying, well, well, they gave loads of furniture to the protest. They started saying you can have your, they, they, they helped build this permanent structure in the middle of the road. And they were like, you can have your meetings in our club if you want. And at first, even the lefties at Cotty were like, we're not going to get these like very religious Muslims in their hijabs to come and sit under a poster for fisting night. It's not going to happen, <laughs> right? But actually, as one of them put it to me, we all took these small steps. We had to learn to talk to each other. But um, after this been going on for about six months, this protest, a guy turned up one day um, called Tunkai. Tunkai was in his early 50s and he's got um, cognitive difficulties. You can tell when you speak to him. And he'd been clearly been living homeless. He started saying, is there anything I can do to help? 
And quite quickly, everyone at the protest camp just loved him, right? The, he united the Muslims, the gays and the punks, right? He's just got a great energy to him. And um, he started, because they built this permanent structure, they said, well, why don't you just live here, right? We don't want you to be homeless, why don't you live here? So he lived there. And after he'd been there for about six months, one day the police came to inspect, which they did every now and then. And um, Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. So he thought the police were arguing, so he went to try to hug them. And they thought he was attacking them, so they arrested him. That was when they discovered that until he made his way to Koti, Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, quite often in a literal padded cell. Um, and so, and he'd been living homeless for a little while and then he found his way to the protest camp. So the police took him back to the psychiatric hospital and suddenly this whole protest movement turns itself into a free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital in the suburbs of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what the fuck is this? There's like 200 people in hijabs, like gays and... and <laughs> give him back right and they're like what's this they don't understand right and i remember uli one of the one of the people the protesters there saying to the psychiatrist you know but he belongs with us right he doesn't belong with you and they eventually got him released many things happened at Cotty that i wrote about in lost connections um uh, one of the most important is they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project they then launched a referendum initiative that got the largest number of written signatures in the history of berlin right mm. But I remember the last time I saw Nuria, she said to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by all these amazing people all along and I, and I never knew. And I remember speaking at one point to one of the Turkish German women there, a woman called Neriman, Neriman Manker. And, and she said to me, it really hit me. She said, when I grew up in Turkey, what I called home was my whole village, right? And then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And then this whole protest began and this whole place became my home. And she said, I realized I had been homeless all this time. I had been living in the West, right? That, you know, and, and, and it really hit me. I began thinking human, human beings need to feel we belong. And our sense of home in this culture is not big enough for our sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. We need to feel we're seen by lots of people. We don't feel that. I thought a lot about Tunkai. I thought, how many of us, if we were carried away and locked away in a circuit, how many of us would have hundreds of people saying, no, he belongs with us, give him back, right? And I think one of the things I learned at Cotty is these problems that seem insoluble when we are alone and isolated and taught to value bullshit like what we buy, become soluble when we're part of a tribe, right? You think about it. These were really serious problems. Uh, Nuria was suicidal, right? Um, Mehmet kept being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. Tunkai was shut away in a, in a padded cell, right? Those problems that had been insoluble when they were alone were solved when they were held and valued and, and supported by other people. And, and to me, that was the transformation that has to happen in our culture, right? If we carry on being alone and so profoundly isolated, and social isolation is so high in Australia, if we carry on being profoundly isolated, these problems are basically insoluble, right? But if we return to our human nature, if we return to have been connected, and, and this is just beneath the surface, right? It didn't need much for those people in Cotty to <clears throat> see how much they needed. They needed each other right and, and the relief they got from that so to me obviously i go through you know a lot of solutions in 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 lost connections 
But the, that was the place where the solutions were most clear to me. The nature of the solutions were most clear to me in Cotton. Uh, it, it's, it's a brilliant book, people. And, and, I, and I really believe, I, like I have, I've just been pushing it so hard because I just think... Start paying your commission, Bevan. Well, <laughs> I, I don't even care. Like, you know, like the, the important things are is that, that, first of all, if you are in this place right now, and I'm sure many people listening to this are this, is that you can get through this. And, yeah. and, 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 I, and I think, I'm, I'm sure you've had... Was that? And you're not crazy, no, right? No, no. feel this way. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like the drug thing. You're not a bad person. You've just got a problem that needs to be fixed, you know. And, and what, what, you know, the important thing to remember is you can get through this. And, you know, I love, you know, your, your book isn't saying drugs, you know, there's, it's some really interesting stuff around the drugs, but really we're saying we need to broaden our approach to, to overcome this. And if you are someone who's experiencing this, but also like even me, I'm, I'm, I'm a Pied Piper in my world, you know, like I, I have the ability to draw people to the things I love. And, and to me, as I read your book, there's, there's a responsibility I have to be able to try influence society in ways that pushes people towards these things. You know, we talk about the marketing and stuff. And so I just think, you know, if you are listening to this, spread the word about the book because it's a really important message. Read the book and then reflect upon where are the areas that you can work on because the thing about the book is as you read it and you understand it, there's no area where you go, oh, that's impossible. You know, now maybe when you're in that place and you're depressed right now, you might not be able to see it, but it might be able to give you some framework to move forward from where one day that will be a distant past. And as a society, this is just such a big problem we need to work on. And so I know you've got to go, so I'm just I'm just wrapping things up. But I love your work. I think you're doing very important work. And um, just thank you for your time today because it's such an important area that, you know, we, we've got to have healthy people. We really do. Well, thank you so much for engaging so deeply with with, um, with the book and for the work you're doing, Bevan. And I should um, say I'm going to be speaking in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Byron Bay. If people go to www.thelostconnections.com slash events. They've not been added yet, but I'm going to be there in um, May. I think it's May. My brain is completely melted. And uh, also if people go to my publisher's time off, I don't say this, that if people go to www.thelostconnections.com, they can find out what loads of people have said about the book from Elton John to Hillary Clinton to Russell Brand yes. um, uh, to Ariana Huffington. Um, and um, they can... Uh, find out where to get the audio book or the book yeah. or um, yeah. loads of other things. And they can listen to audio of interviews with loads of the people we've talked about. Um, you know, some of the amazing experts who, who've, who've written about this and, and uh, you know, I did this interview recently where they were like, uh, at the end of the interview, they were like, what's, can people follow you on Twitter and Facebook? And I was like, yeah, and I gave the things people can go to the website if they want that. But then they said, um, they were like, what's your Twitter? What's your Facebook? And they said, what's your Snapchat? And I was like, I am a 39 year old man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 39 year old men on Snapchat are certainly paedophiles, right? Like, <laughs> just can't be asking grown adults that question, right? Uh, oh, we're out of touch. We're out of touch. Hey, um, <laughs> I'm just, you should be very proud of the work you're doing. Um, thank you so much for your time today and just keep, uh, even though Norm Chomsky, was, was, is it Chomsky? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm sure there'll be a brilliant book as well. I look forward to reading it. So keep up the good work and thank you so much for your time today. Uh, cheers. Thanks again, Bevan. Have awesome. a good day. Okay, John, so if you want to check out that book, it is Lost Connections. Um, I recommend it. I've been recommending it to so many people, and it's been really cool because some people I know who have, have their struggles 
have read it and said to me, look, it's really, really helped. And and also, I think it's a, the educational and the learnings in the book also teach about what you should be prioritising in life and how you make life decisions. And even someone who, who doesn't necessarily go through depression myself, it, it is one of those things that oh, I need to be aware of this stuff as I make choices. And so check it out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Lost Connections, brilliant book. Okay, John, um, patrons. Mark the Gardener Egan. Sam the Wild One Wolves. And Thomas is going long. long. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. Okay, <laughs> uh, John, uh, sponsors. Extreme Endurance. It's your lactic buffer. And our patrons. And remember, patrons, uh, or if you want to become a patron, you've only got 10 days to do that. We're, we're going to do our patrons draw on uh, the show that's around about Mar- uh, March 31st. Is we're going to do it whatever show sort of falls around about then. So if you're keen to go on the draw as well as supporting the show, and making sure we keep doing what we're doing, um, get on it and uh, help support the show and be in the draw to win a trip to the Hawaii Ironman later this year. Okay, John, what's your goss? What's my goss? Uh, weekend was very much dominated by the Sea to Sky Challenge, uh, and so just getting my life back in order. Belinda was away for the weekend. It was actually ended up being quite good. She went over to Australia with uh, with Jen, Phil Patterson. The the um, who's this week's photo? This week's photo. He was out there doing the Sea to Sky Challenge. Got a now Phil's Pit Fitness is building, um, but. I saw him cross the finish line. And I thought, oh, he's, he's a bit further down than I expected, like a lot further down. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh. But he, he actually got a punch on the bike course oh, okay. and uh, apparently walked for about 3Ks. So oh, uh, okay. that was why. Um, but Belinda was away. She went to go and see. She saw Ed Sheeran and she did all was this he, other Did she stuff say he was good? Yeah, she said it was fantastic. So they were away. So I had a, no no wife and no children at home for, for, for three days. So I was very, very... Um, occupied by getting this race sorted out but it was actually quite good because <laughs> i didn't have to do anything for anybody except for myself being nice you can and be selfish. selfish for once in your life yeah so that was that was my weekend and now that summer done and dusted for us down here in terms of racing in new zealand at least in christchurch so oh. now i get to focus on other things i like my wife because like joe oh, that's I'm good yeah well, no, but i like I'm the one who goes away. Like I'm, I'm away a lot, you know, just in my life, my world. Um, and then occasionally I'll be home and Joe goes away. And at first you think, oh, cool, get all this stuff done. And then about three hours later, oh, wish, wish Joe was around. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other goss, John? What about this week? Uh, this week, um, nothing too much going on. My daughter's birthday at the weekend and Ooh. I've – Actually, they're still in bed, actually. It's only 6.44. She bloody, we have to wake her up these days. Um, uh, we've got something that's going to require a bit of construction, so that's going to oh. be uh, going to be quite a task for me. Does it, does it rhyme with ramparine? It does. <laughs> okay. Nice. Apparently, the new ramparines are pretty yeah. hard to put together. Yeah. So, good luck with that. Well, um, this, this is a second-hand um, one of those, and okay. uh, so it will have been... Built, dismantled, and then I've got to rebuild it again. Good luck with that, eh? Good luck. Mm. Good luck. Uh, What's happening in your world, Bevan? No, I did last night, Jombo. You went crazy. Went to the league. No, but I tell you what, did you watch the Warriors? I did not watch the Warriors. Bloody Warriors, two in a row. (laughs) Loving it. Loving it. This is our year. This is is our year, John. Um, No, I'm in Wellington. I was doing some work. I'm in my, my scummy little motel room. And uh, Lans, Lans um, Kingy, she is, I don't know, she listens to the show, she's a triathlete, but she goes out with David Craig. 
Mm-hmm. And That's so we listen. Definitely, I'm sure. Yeah, we were in the house. I got to hang out with David Craig. Not Craig David. Well, I, I actually, I, I saw her the other day, I was like, fuck, is it Craig David or David Craig? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, geez, they put on a good meal for me. They've just made these little, little, little kind of healthy burger bun things. But salmon, oh my God, they didn't go shy on the salmon. It was a good meal. Tell you what, but it was a good catch-up. I haven't seen Dave. Well, you kind of see him say hello to, but go, go around to the house and have a great dinner and tell some funny stories and... Jeez, you just we were talking about how reflecting on the on the training we used to do, and because he was telling me because he did length in New Zealand with you as well. Yeah, yeah and, he, went bit, and, he went a bit crazy because he said he basically he wanted to be the person who ran the most on the camp, camp as well because you guys rode like nut bar. Mm. I think he said he ran two hundred fifty k or something over the two weeks as well. He uh, he got into a red jersey duel that can sometimes be the undoing <laughs> of people, and uh, it was it was quite a duel. <laughs> did he end up getting it? Uh, I th- no, I don't think he did. No, I think it was him and Marky, Mark Pietrafessa, the curly freight oh, train. Yeah, 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 From yeah, memory, yeah. I think it was those two going head to head. And Mark Pietrafessa, because he was a good swimmer, he was able to kind of, he got into a, a defending position. So it's much like the Tour de France. Once you're oh. in front, you've just got to cover people. And yeah. uh, and so I think he, he was getting a bit frustrated about having to cover what David Craig was doing. It's like, <laughs> oh man, just give me a break. Because <laughs> again, once you're in front, you just got to cover. And so he had to start doing all these stupid things to, to make sure he stayed in red. I'm pretty sure that's how it worked out. Yeah, well, David said he really wanted to be the person who ran the most on the camp, and, and he said he did. So it was just cool catch up with those guys, and, and uh, yeah, they put a great meal for me, so I was pretty happy about that. Um, other than that, John, um, no, I'm going to Wanaka this weekend. Got Wanaka coming up. Got Wanaka nice. half the runners, so I'm going to head down to Wanaka. Other than that, that's pretty much it, really. Yeah. Very good. Well, you got a plane to catch, so let's yep. wrap it up. Okay, let's do it. I'm Russ. I'm Indo. Train hard. Train smart. Kia, Kia kaha. Kaha.